Hey, freeloaders. Yeah, you weren't expecting this, were you? This is what we're going to do. We're just going to pop these bad boys out every now and then. You guys will think it's an off week, and then boom, freeloader series hits your feed. You're welcome. Those rusted-on patrons might get upset about it, but it's okay, because we love them too. And they got a new episode today as well. So everybody gets a new episode, right? Everyone's happy. Don't get mad because someone else gets something when you get something, because you think they're undeserving. It's okay. This is like over almost two years. So it's a pretty old episode. This episode is actually one of Lauren's favorites, obviously, right? Because it has wrestling. <laughs> if anybody, if you guys don't know, Lauren is big into jiu-jitsu, and um, he loved this case very much. And for obvious reasons, it's it's a it's an inspiring case, but it's also a case of of heartbreak and disaster, like many of the cases that we cover here. Um, we watched a documentary called Foxcatcher, which I think we will briefly talk about. Highly recommend watching that documentary. Um, you don't have to watch it before you listen to this episode. I don't think that's going to really matter. Um, but I think once you listen to this episode, it'll be really helpful to put faces to names and to fully grasp this story, this, um, this horrible tragedy that happened to one of, probably one of the greatest people, uh, that we've covered. So without further ado, guys, here's Freeloader Series, episode 11. All right, guys, we'll see you on the other side. Yeah, this case... Uh Team Foxcatcher was the documentary we watched on Netflix. Phenomenal right. documentary. There's a film I'm sure you've heard of. Uh, what year did that come out? I don't know. Let me check it out. It's called Foxcatcher. It's got mm-hmm. Steve Carell. We love The Office here. It's also got uh, the the very attractive Channing Tatum. Right. And uh, who was it that played Dave again? I, I forget the actor's name. He's a really good actor. Um, anyways, yeah, that, that film, if you've seen that, it's... 2014. It's, 2014, Foxcatcher. Who was the actor that played Dave again? It was... Uh... Mark Ruffalo? Yeah, Mark Ruffalo. Yep. The acting in it was phenomenal. The actors trained in wrestling with top-notch wrestlers to get ready for this. Uh, Mark Schultz actually trained Channing Tatum to get ready for this. That's why he looked like a legit wrestler in this movie. Nice. The He's film... a pretty athletic dude anyways, though. I'm sure it wasn't much for him to yeah. kind of get into he looks that like mindset. He probably wrestled He's taller than Mark, though, isn't he? Channing Tatum's a big dude. Yeah. Yeah, he's he's, probably, I think he's over six I don't six think feet. the the Schultz brothers were that tall, were they? Yeah, but height. I mean, they can they can doesn't really matter, adjust right? that in film. Yeah, they make Tom Cruise look tall and everything. He's a midget basically. Oh, well, a little person. Sorry, good to know. <laughs> wow, how dare you? That <laughs> <laughs> just came right out. <laughs> right? Like, this is... <laughs> well, I don't think that's proper. <laughs> if you're a little person listening to this, I'm sorry. Yeah, apologize. apologize. I'll use the proper terminology. I think I don't even know if they like that anymore. I don't know. Man. I forget. Man. It's, it's, it's yeah. It's, it's the climate, every day. man. The, the climate, climate, man. It's the hot. climate out here. We don't know what, what to say. It's only like sixty-eight degrees in here, but right? it feels really hot right now. All of a sudden. Yeah, I don't think I, you can say like. Sex since I dropped that M bomb, I don't know <laughs> the M bomb. Can't say prostitutes anymore. Yeah, it's can't sex say workers. gypsy. Can't say. Can't say gypsy. I don't think so, man. I heard that shit. Man, yeah. we need to like. We need to like 
uh, an email feed that like lets us know proper <laughs> words every day. That you can't say this one anymore. They let us know on Twitter. <laughs> right. That Twitter, that's right. Twitter is that one. But you have to say it for them to have to correct you. Yeah. If it's, you've already fucked up at that <laughs> then point. Then we ignore it. Yeah. It's like I need ahead of time knowledge. <clears throat> yeah, we live out in the boonies, okay? We right. we we don't know what's going on. Yeah. <laughs> we don't mean to offend, guys. Right. It's all about it's all about intent. Seriously. I really think that. Context and intent. Because sure. all of you, okay, so all of you have those friends that you can say whatever you want to. Mm-hmm. And you know that they're going to. You can send gonna, them memes too. And, yeah. And, like, and they're yeah. going to take it in stride yep. because they know that your intent is not malicious. Exactly. And that is how we should treat everybody. You wouldn't send those same things or say those same things to a person you just met. Right. You can't. For fear that they wouldn't understand where you're coming from. Right. Yep. Exactly. And you don't have time to describe your intent to everyone, but. That's you know what it is. That's yeah. that's the problem. Is that people don't want to take the time to to look at it from a different point of view. Like, oh, maybe they didn't mean to be hurtful. Maybe that's just the the term that they've heard their whole life. Mm-hmm. And that's all. That's how they said it. I don't know, man. Going down a rabbit hole here. Super rabbit. It's dangerous one. That's right. We should get it's, out. Uh, there's, it's a rabbit hole that's got like a fucking viper in it, or like a fox at the end. Fox catcher? Yeah. So oh. we're going to catch it? Oh, not if we're rabbits. <laughs> <laughs> so back around in a lovely way to oh, this case. Nice segue. Yeah, so do you want to drop the intro and we'll get into this? It's got wrestling. It's got mighty. Heck yeah, let's do it. It's got a, a trust fund baby boy, as you talked about in your That's right. podcast. Mr. DuPont. Mr. DuPont. DuPont. All right, let's fire this thing let's up. Let's do this. I want you to try something. This is good for you heavyweights, too. Instead of shooting your head to his leg... We're gonna shoot your head. I'm just showing you a variation. There's a hundred different ways to do wrestling moves. This is just a little different way. I'm showing you different ways so you can play with it. Okay, now this time, make, make sure to do this with your neck. Okay, and you're gonna try and put your head right there. See that spot right there? And now, it's called running double. Now you're here, he reaches right there. See that? Right there. Now, what it does is it knocks the guy back. It's real easy to finish this hole because you just grab his legs and push. Balls asked me, well, haven't you had to sacrifice a lot? You know, I didn't have hardly a social life in high school outside of my wrestling group. But to me, it's not sacrifice. It's just a choice. Anything you want to do... I'm not wrestling for any reason other than I want to wrestle. So I'm doing what I want to do. Hi, my name is John DuPont. Welcome to Foxcatcher Farm. It's just the idea that you're out alone with no telephones, no one bothering you. And relax for a few moments. And hopefully catch the fish and have some fun to go along with it. Fishing has been a lifelong hobby of mine ever since I was a kid growing up on the farm. Oh, got a fish. Oh, got away, got away. I had the opportunity to fish as, as a kid. I just followed through with it. I'm not the best fisherman in the world. But I have a lot more fun than a lot of my other fishing friends in this world who think they're supposedly experts. Sometimes the fish cooperate, sometimes they don't. My technique for catching fish is very simple. I take my athletic tenacity 
apply it against the fish and make it fierce competition. Except there's one catch to it. I win, they lose. I win, I win, they lose, they lose. So for you patrons, we got a special case, one that I've been wanting to do for a while, man. I've always yeah. loved this case because of the documentary on Netflix called Team Foxcatcher. I've gotten sucked into watching it and just love that documentary. You've watched I, it a few times, haven't you? I've watched it like five, six times. <laughs> I don't know what it is about it. I just I just really resonate with Dave Schultz. He's yeah. the victim in this case. I, you just feel like through that documentary, you get to know him. you know. And I also enjoy, I really enjoy the sport of wrestling. Not that I did it, but like I, I respect wrestlers. Like mm-hmm. I think it's a badass sport like the dudes that are in it are tough like truly tough guys absolutely um and like dave just seemed like he was like the most likable dude ever everybody says the same thing he's he he just had an aura about him he really did and i think all those videos speak for themselves yeah you saw him helping people and and raising his kids and spending time with his kids he looked like he had a well-balanced life too yes it seems like he did everything right definitely he yeah he was a he, he didn't like to dress fancy. He just kind of wore whatever he wore, and he was yeah. go- he was goofy, and he was never serious. And like, but yet on the mat, he was an absolute animal. He One was. of the best wrestlers in the world. But you <laughs> would never not, know if you see him walk around, you just like no. seem like this jovial, like not silly a big guy, guy either. Like, not a he big took guy. down most of the guys. They said he, he looked like a, he looked like a chemistry teacher or something, like a professor. Like, he, he, he did. Did not. He looked look like, like a fit professor, to be fair. But yeah. he didn't look. He wasn't as big as the wrestlers, though. Yeah, a lot of those guys. He had that goon. And walk, he's all though. hairy as he hell. The, he he's like the, a fucking werewolf. <laughs> he had that goon walk though. The Dan Henderson like goon walk where you're like stiff, like kind of walking around like a crow. Yeah. Yeah. But it was part of his charm, though. Yeah. Because he always had that grin on his face. Yeah. So it was like it wasn't... Because he knew he could fuck everyone in the world up. <laughs> That's part of that grin is like, hey, I'm going to be silly with you because like, I could kick your ass for sure. <laughs> I don't know. Or maybe he didn't want to be known by that. You know, yeah. Yeah, I thought true. about it before. And you see, like, like when you see a bodybuilder or somebody out in public, yeah. it's like it's almost like being a celebrity. Mm-hmm. It's like you don't get any peace, and also you don't have anything else that a, that people identify you with. Yeah, they once, assume you're dumb. Like you're, exactly. Yeah. Once you get that big, or you get that profound in a sport, or in you know, in, in changing your body, or whatever it yeah. is, people they only see that outward look, and then they don't get, they don't think that oh maybe he's funny or shit, or maybe he's charismatic, or maybe he's smart. Dude, honestly, especially a lot of not times, smart. A lot of times, uh, they, like meatheads are some of the funniest dudes you'll ever meet. A lot of them are yeah. fucking hilarious. Yeah, and they're know, more they, they've grown up in that environment, like the locker room environment, like wrestlers. Yeah, funny dudes because like it was no holds barred. Like they would wrestle their ass off, beat each other up, but then it was all jokes after that. You know, right. Like Rampage Jackson in the in the UFC, not in, formerly in the UFC, but one of the most famous fighters from the UFC was is one of the funniest dudes ever. Oh, I bet. There's a lot of dudes that come from that environment, and it's that 
locker room talk is like this makes them into hilarious people. It like makes a lot you of quick sh- on your feet. Yeah, a lot yeah. of people that video game a lot and talk shit on Xbox Live and stuff are also really funny people because <laughs> it's just like you're verbal sparring constantly. Yes. You know, you're always arguing you with people. You become quicker and quicker yep. at the, yeah, with the comebacks. Yeah. Um, so we watched the the film Foxcatcher. We watched the documentary we mm-hmm. keep raving about, which I've cried pretty much every time I've watched it. The end of that documentary is so sad. Right. When it's like... It, talking, it really is. I cried too, to, man. They're talking to Dave's family, like his wife and his kids, and his kids are like, I never really got to know my dad because he was taken too early. And Dude, and then you see that video at the end of him laying on the hammock with yeah. his with yeah. his son and God, daughter. That part gets me every. That's when I st- that's when the tears come. Man. And you can tell they're so happy. Right. Like everything is just perfect. Yeah. Yeah, yeah it's, it, it kills me, dude. Yeah. And we also uh, so read a book. book. Yeah, we got the book written by his brother, Mark Schultz, who is also one of the greatest wrestlers of all time as well. Yes, in well, co-written with Mark Schultz with also a man named David Thomas. But it was in his words. So I'm guessing Mark yeah, told right. the stories and then this guy wrote the actual because Mark wasn't necessarily a writer. And this book, guys, I guess Mark felt like he had to do it because he's not represented in other resources. Uh-huh. But in this book, I mean, it's all Mark, is it not? Yeah, yeah it is. I was like, dude. Where, where, what about Dave? Yeah, that's what I told Michael because I'd seen the doc. On yeah. Net- it's a Netflix original documentary. Yeah, see, I read Team the book Fox first. Country. Yeah, and I was like, he was like, there's no Dave in it. I'm yeah. like, watch the documentary because the Dave is, or the, the Dave the documentary <laughs> is all Dave. Right. Um, and no Mark. Right. I don't, dude, do they even say Mark's name? Is he even in one of the interview people? Is he one of the. Inter- no, he's not in it. He's not in it he's at all, it. Mark, is he? Mark Schultz is not in it. No, it's a lot of wrestlers that Dave was with on Team Foxcatcher. Yeah. There's no Mark Schultz in it. Now to but be he's fair, he's a strange cat though. Like he's he's uh, he's out there. Like he when the movie came out, the movie, the film Foxcatcher with Steve Carell and all them. Yeah, um, he was riding hard for it. Like when it first came out, he was doing all these interviews and like I don't know if they paid him or what, but he was right. like saying how great this film is and how realistic it is and everything. Yeah. A month later, he comes out and threatens the director and saying he's going to kill the director and how they portrayed him to be a homosexual. Right. Now, Lauren's not talking about, you're not talking about the documentary right now. You're talking no, about talking the movie the with film. Channing Tatum. Film. Yeah. Yeah. That's what Mark was. But I'm just saying, I'm, I'm just basically giving uh, some examples of Mark being a little bit, intri- like he's kind of back and forth. He goes through yeah. bouts of like psychosis or something. Like he's a little, I'm sure he's had a lot of head trauma. You know, we're going to go through his and his brother's right. childhoods. Um, but yeah, so the book that we got was by Mark Schultz and his co-writer. Yeah. It was called Foxcatcher, The True Story of My Brother's Murder, John mm-hmm. DuPont's Madness, and The Quest for Olympic Gold. And so that's, this is the book that we got. We got it on I would Audible. like to retitle it, um, Foxcatcher, The True Story of Mark Schultz's Wrestling Career. <laughs> <laughs> Am I wrong? It, yeah, it's like, Dude, I don't know. How, how come many on. chapters is it? It's like Let's 20 see, chapters. For, 15 of them are his wrestling I career. I was going to say, if it's 20 chapters, then like 18 are like wrestling matches that he had. At and least. then two of them are like their child. One's their childhood and one's the murder. Oh my God. So much unnecessary shit. There's like a, s- stuff about like his diet and his nutrition. He's like, oh, I got to cut weight. I'm like, Mark, get to the fucking point. Bro. Well, if you're, like, if what you're is really, Dave doing right now? If you if you were a high school wrestler and you still enjoy that sport or if you're just a fan of... of this, the book is for, yeah, a fan of wrestling. Olympic wrestling or catch wrestling or, you know, any... Collegiate wrestling, right. you'll enjoy it because it's a lot. It goes deep, nerdy shit with wrestling. Yes, a lot of technique talk, things like that. Yes, yeah. yeah. So there's a lot of that. Um, but yeah, was, obviously we had multiple resources, so we didn't just rely entirely on the book. Thank God. But a lot of this timeline is based off the book. But I tried to keep the. There's not too much of the nerdy wrestling stuff in there. Right. Just, there's just enough. Yeah. Because you do. I mean, that's what they were as human beings. They were. 
You have to be That's to be that good, dude. Entire life doing. You, you have know? to be a quote unquote nerd about something to be some to be good at it. Period. Get, yeah, to get to that level where you're wrestling in the Olympics, it's yeah. been, it's been your life. Like, there's no other way. Yeah, you're not going to make it, especially not being in the U.S. It's not like Russia. At the yeah. time where they had m- way more resources and mm-hmm. that's rest- the, and that's a, that's really like kind of the whole thing to this story. Is exactly. It, if, the, if America would have uh, supported their wrestlers properly, this never would have happened. It was a very unfortunate money, thing where wrestlers did what they had to do. They crossed paths with a, with a creepy guy named John Dupont, mm-hmm. who uh, inherited a whole lot of money when he was born and just seemed to take a liking to sports and wrestling in particular. Yep. Threw a lot of money at it. Wanted to be like them, wanted to be one of them, and ended up ultimately killing one of the sport's greatest characters. If not the greatest, yeah. maybe one of the greatest wrestling figures. I mean, what, what could he have went on to do, you know? Right. As yeah, far Dave, as, Dave, it's like as maybe not wrestling, but yeah, but as far as coaching and the for program the for the yeah. U.S., yep. yeah. I mean, damn, he'd be like the Coach K of wrestling. Yeah, it's a I, shame it went the way it went because DuPont was doing good things. He just had to make them bad. You know, by his just his character because his ego, he couldn't just le- know his part, which was supporting yeah. them financially, giving them the things they need to to flourish. He had I, to be a wrestler himself and be one of those guys, and he wanted to be the coach and he wanted to be the guy, right? And he just couldn't handle knowing his place, you know. And I, but I also think Dupont spent a lot of time in a fog. He spent a lot of time yeah, in a drug induced fog, and the paranoia just we'll get crept it, up we'll get on into him. All man. That. Let's start at the beginning because yeah, we're going yeah. into like the the. Yeah. One of my favorite quotes from this book, from uh, Mark Schultz's book, quote, there's some things in life you just can't buy, but John DuPont tried anyway. That's really kind of sums this book up, man. It sums this story up. Yeah, it does. He wanted to be a lot of things and he thought that he could get there by just throwing money at it. But really like the stuff like to become an Olympic athlete, because he wasn't just wrestling. He tried to become an Olympic, uh, what was it? Um, Pentathlon. Uh, he tried to get into that because he thought he might have the best chance and success and right. like actually becoming an Olympic athlete. I mean, he just was not an athlete. He, he just wasn't. He, he just was didn't goofy, have the tools. He was a goofy dude. Yeah. It, it, it was not in the cards for him, but he couldn't accept that. Right. So let's start with the wrestlers. Dave Schultz was born June 6, 1952 in Palo Alto, California. Actually shares a birthday with my son. June 6th is That's my awesome. son's birthday. That's really awesome because I love Dave Schultz. So. Yeah, there you go. Yeah, I love them both. <laughs> For once, I can say that. It's not a serial killer. Right. At least I my know. son doesn't shave, share a nice. birthday with, like, David Berkowitz or something. It no. is nice to have such an inspirational character that we're doing a case on, finally. Right. Yeah, you know? really. It is nice. It is. I'm not saying we haven't had heroes in the past. Like, what was the the brothers where one was a hero, he saved that little boy? Uh, Strainer. The Stainer. Oh, Stainer, Stainers, yeah. The Stainer brothers. Like, we have mm-hmm. a few, like, there and there, here and there, but... Not someone like Dave, where I admire his dedication, his attitude, his his humble, his humility. Humble was dude. Man, his humility was incredible. Was, yeah, the dude was truly humble. It wasn't like fake humble either. No, like, this his dude. wife. I love the story of in that documentary of when his mi- wife met him, and mm-hmm. like she started dating him, and she didn't even know he wrestled. She went to she went back to his his dorm or whatever, <laughs> or yeah, I think it was they met in college. Maybe yeah. She went back to his dorm, and there's fucking medals like all over Dude, the place. Dude, that speaks so much volumes and, and, about a person. And because uh, he had kind of mentioned like, "Yeah, I wrestle" or whatever. And she's like, "Oh, cool." Like you know, he's yeah. just like, "Yeah, I wrestle." And she was like, "Oh, cool." And then she goes back, and she's like, "Oh, you're like really good." Yeah, she's, she's like, like "No, yeah. you don't just wrestle." He's like, "Yeah, I like it." It's <laughs> like fucking yeah. Olympic gold medals hanging up and shit. He's a <laughs> he's I over dabble. there playing he's over there playing NBA Jam. He's like, "Yeah, I like it. It's alright." <laughs> I, I dabble a little bit. <laughs> I happen to be one of like the two best wrestlers in the world. Right? No big deal. <laughs> No biggie. No biggie. 
I wish I could be like that. If I was as good as him, man, I'd be fucking wearing my medals all over the place. No, no, nah, you wouldn't. <laughs> you wouldn't do that, man. I know. Because it sounds funny to say though. Yeah. So, yeah, uh, his brother, Mark Schultz, was born October 26, 1960. There was an eight-year gap between them, Mark being the younger brother, yeah. al- always looking up to his brother Eight-year Dave. gap. I did not know it was that much. Yeah, it's pretty extreme. The book, you wouldn't think so. It sounds like they followed the same path, like, yes. just a, a year behind Yes, it sounded like they were right behind each I other. I keep checking that. I'm like, it sound, the book makes it sound like he was, like, one year behind his brother, but right. it's eight years. That's a huge gap. In order for that to be, in order for them to be able to practice and wrestle together, I mean, that's... That's way late in their life. Like, right. no wonder Dave was so f- more farther advanced. Like, because yeah. I didn't understand. Cause, like you said, the book makes it seem like they're maybe three year gap at most, mm-hmm. two three years. No, but no, eight years. That's a big gap, man. Yeah. Combined, the brother. It's actually surprising they were as close as they were too, considering yeah. that eight year gap, which says a lot about Dave's character as well. well I, because a lot of older brothers, when you got an eight year gap, they just you know they don't tend to be that close with their younger brother absolutely. because they're doing bigger better things especially off. brothers yeah. like an older sister i feel like tends to to take care of their younger siblings yeah. a little more and want to be connected but an older brother you're right yeah you're right we we a can be they, i'm an older brother and i can relate it, they don't want anything to do with their younger brother that's yeah. that much younger i have a my youngest sister i have one sister that's 27 and then i have another sister that's 15 and mm-hmm. i feel i don't feel you know as close to her and it's just because we didn't grow up together yeah that's all it is man yeah you don't have yeah common you don't have like all the same people that you hung out with right. you don't have the same yeah by the time you're out of school like Dude, it's you're, a totally different class you're different kids. generations yeah what yeah. generations span what 15 years you're we're, we're basically different generations mm-hmm. well combined the brothers would go on to win a combined four collegiate championships two olympic gold medals and three world wrestling titles all in a time where like we said the u.s really wasn't supporting wrestlers either these guys so. were making like ten thousand dollars a year yeah, we'll get into the specifics of how little the U.S. was supporting them, but basically Russia during this time was fully funding their their wrestlers Dude. to make a. Li- they were paying them full salary mm-hmm. just to wrestle so that they could win probably, Olympics. Probably housing and yes. and food Giving as them well. Everything they needed. Yeah. Yep. And then um, in America, it was nothing. Like you had to basically be in the top three to get even any money at all. Right. In USA wrestling, and as far as like your daily like being able to live no they had to go become like assistant coaches at wrestling programs and stuff right. in order just to make an, a meager salary with no health insurance a lot of times right and it's not like these guys <clears throat> could just go get a regular job and wrestle part-time because wrestling part-time would not be enough no, hell no it's no. not enough no. to be a gold you had to medalist. be on the mat hours and hours per day yes and eating right and so you had to be around it you had to be working in a gym your your yeah. jobs were limited had if to you be, wanted to stay in that yeah, field that's a good point they had to be wrestling jobs yes. because that's the only way you could get paid to be doing what you need to be doing to exactly. stay on track yep the brothers parents divorced when dave was 11 and mark three uh, apparently it wasn't a nasty divorce the boy the boys were also very close to their grandparents on their mother's side as a boy, Dave was nicknamed Pudge. He was also uncoordinated and dyslexic, apparently, when he was younger. That's, that's interesting. Which the dyslexia played a big role in his success later because he became very um, ambidextrous. He be able, he became capable of using both hands yeah. and both legs the same. So when he wrestled, he could shoot on either side just as just as good, Like whereas most people tended to be better at one way. Right. They to want do, to get their opponent on the one side, their strong side or whatever. Yeah, he yeah. was he was completely he could just flip. Like yeah. it's like a boxer that could go southpaw or uh regular orthodox stance and be just as good at both. Right. Which is very rare. Um he uh had a great difficulty Dave as a child uh reading and was placed in remedial classes actually, but he was known to be very bright. He just mm-hmm. struggled with reading because of his uh severe dyslexia. Right. Mark was small and Dave dyslexic, which led to frequent bullying of them both when they were younger. Another uh, sign of 
things to come with them yeah. wanting to get into wrestling and stuff to defend yeah, themselves. Some sort of self-defense, right? Right. One day when Dave was in third grade, a kid made fun of him for being in remedial classes. Dave took the boy to the ground and slammed his head against the concrete, knocking <laughs> the boy out and cracking his skull. He was then known as the toughest kid in school. So even before he got into wrestling, he was yeah. it was already his inclination was to take a guy or a kid to the ground and beat him up. And he was always good at it. Right. And you would think, though, like a grappling style would, would fit him better. If, if he didn't have the best motor skills, if he wasn't coordinated. Yeah. Like, I bet Dave wasn't good it, at ping pong. Right. You know what I mean? <laughs> but yeah. when he got his hands on something, yeah. the dude was loose and limber and strong. Yes, yes. And it was just it was just in his wheelhouse, man. He had the perfect build for it, in my opinion. Yeah, especially for freestyle wrestling, yeah. which is what he really became known for. Um yeah, he he just like he had that. He's like you said, he was like lean, but like super strong for yes. a guy that didn't look thick. Because like, Mark, his younger brother, would end up having a much different build. They looked completely different. Yeah, Mark was bigger than him, wasn't he? Mark, he was they, stocky. Yeah, had, like so, the like, thick neck. Even when you just see the casting of the movie, Foxcatcher, mm-hmm. you got uh, Channing Tatum, right, and then you got Mark Ruffalo, total, two totally different looking guys. But that's exactly how the brothers. And they were. had Tatum look. They had him bulk up because Mark was huge and he was known to be a physical force wrestling, like very, he used his brute strength over, whereas Dave was a technician, like the best technician the sport's ever known. Like he knew every move and he he could go, he could do a clinic, he could do seminars and teach guys that have been wrestling forever new shit that they didn't know because he just mastered every technique and added to it and added to it. And he's just like, that's the part of the game that he loved was the mind game of like learning how to manipulate someone. I, I think ultimately what made Dave more successful than Mark was the, the ability to keep his cool. That's and it, I yeah. think he practiced that day in and day out. Mark just seemed like more of a hothead. He seemed like more of a passionate wrestler. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? Like if somebody really wanted to get under his skin, that's how you would beat Mark. I'm going to smash him. Yeah, because he would do <laughs> more like of a some, meathead. Yeah, more of a meathead. he would do some crazy shit and make a mistake. Mm-hmm. But Dave just... He was Dave like, would use your he, aggression against right, you. Right, he's like slamming you to the mat while smiling. Yeah. Like, he's just... <laughs> right. You can't get under his skin, man. Another time a bully was picking on Mark, Dave took the kid to the ground yet again, pummeled him until he ran home crying. <laughs> so Dave quickly, maybe not the biggest kid, but became known as the, the kid you didn't want to mess with in yeah. school. Yeah. A beef between Dave and, and a kid named John developed at school, and the two agreed to meet on the playground for a fight after school. Um, once again, Dave ended up on top and pummeled John in front of many onlookers. Both were crying during the fight, however. This is actually something I th- yeah. thought was interesting from the book. From Mark's perspective, he witnessed this fight of his older brother, obviously, doing this to his kid. And it reminded me of, like, A Christmas Story, where Ralphie's, like, yes. on top and he's beating up on the bully, but on he's also eyes. crying. He's like, I don't want to have to do this. <laughs> well, dude, it's you your, made me do this. It's your adrenaline. It's your emotion. Yes. It's yeah, excitement. so worked up. And when you're a kid, I mean, it brings you to tears. Just like you have happy tears, you have sad tears, you have... You know, you have adrenaline tears, too. Some people yeah. do. And yeah. it's like, don't be fooled. Just because they're crying, they can still whoop your ass. <laughs> yeah. yeah, they'll beat your face in while they're crying. Right. <laughs> they're mourning your loss of your face. <laughs> Mark's like, I'm sorry, man, but you picked on my brother, too. Right. <laughs> Their mother would end up remarrying and attend a graduate school at Stanford University. She accepted a job to be a costume designer for the Oregon Shakespeare Festival in Ashland, Oregon. Mm. A very prestigious job apparently didn't pay a whole lot, um, but this forced them to move to Oregon, which... Uh, Where were they from originally? They were from California, Palo okay, Alto that's right, that's area, right. I believe. Um, I know they spent a lot of time in Oregon. And they loved up. it in California, and they hated yeah. it in Oregon. Or at least uh, Mark, the younger brother, hated it in Oregon. I bet, man. He talked a lot. Remember, he talked <laughs> a lot in the book about how much he despised Oregon. Yeah, he really didn't like Oregon. And being forced to move there. The move took them six hours from Palo Alto, where their father, grandparents, and friends stayed. 
The boys were close with their father, a Stanford grad, comedian, and drama professor. That's interesting. You can right? see that, I guess, in Dave. Dave. Maybe that's where he got that silly. Dave must have been just like his dad. Yeah. Just yep. naturally, right? Yep. I bet if I'd like to see a picture of his dad, see if they bet, look alike. Dude, how funny would Dave be on stage though? Like if what if he would have took that path as a comedian? Right. Like with it with his demeanor mm-hmm. and like the way he carries himself. I could see him up there just kind of chilling, you know, it's yeah. like Neanderthal walk, just right. up there like saying jokes yeah. and shit. Yeah. Like Joe Rogan. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I can see it. <clears throat> Mark grew to resent Oregon and still claims to hate it to this day, as I've mentioned. Their mother soon divorced again and her parents passed away. Her job at the Shakespeare Festival was one of the best in the country but required most of her time and didn't provide an extravagant lifestyle by any means. So in Oregon, they basically lived in a shack behind the house. The boys and their mother lived in a 1,200-square-foot house, but in the house, the second bedroom where they should be was like all glass windows Oh, like a sunroom. Had, no, had no insulation, and so they would freeze if they were in there. Basically, an enclosed porch. Yeah, and yeah. You, and you know you don't get much sun in Oregon, right? So yeah, yeah, that's not the best place to be. Right, I wouldn't think like yeah. here in Southern Nevada. It might work out here. But, uh, yeah, a sunroom yeah, would be amazing every day. And you're just in a glass room, right? Yeah, so they basically <laughs> lived in a, a shack behind the house, which they named the bunkhouse. It was uncomfortable and cold. It had no beds. They used cots and sleeping bags with a small electric heater. Dude, I would have loved that as a kid though. <clears throat> Right. I would have been like, please let me live out in the fucking shed. <laughs> you think it would be fun, right? kid, especially for Mark being eight years younger. Fun, dude. For Mark being eight years younger, you would think that like he's like camping with his older brother every yeah. night. <laughs> yeah, you kind of have your own house. You right. have your own little house. You do what you want in there. Yeah. The boys were always dirty and often wore the same clothes for days on end. In sixth grade, Mark broke 20 of their school's 25 athletic records for his grade. So Mark showed to be a very ath- athletic kid. Right. Um, and he realized right away that he was different as far as a physical presence. Like he raced some kid in school and just blew him away. And he was like, huh, I think I have – later he describes that he, he thinks he has like more fast twitch muscle fibers or something, which there's different types of body styles. There's yeah. there's more endurance people and then there's like the quick twitch yeah, there athletes. Is. In sixth grade – oh, I already said that. Dave took up wrestling in the seventh grade and immediately fell in love with the sport from the start. He would later be known as one of the smartest and most brilliant technicians the sport's ever seen. This started back in the seventh grade when he was known to take others' techniques and improve them as well as frequently baiting his opponents into traps that he had set for them. Getting better at wrestling was all Dave cared about. He he carried wrestling shoes with him at all times and wore a singlet underneath his clothes just in case. <laughs> just in that. case, bro. You want to go? Bro, you want to go? Can you imagine? You're like, fuck with some dude. And you're like, yeah, let's go, let's go. Let's and he go. rips off his let's fucking go. shirt. There's a singlet underneath. You're like, oh, Christ. Oh, fuck. What have I done? <laughs> and all that hair, too. Oh, God. He probably had, like, cauliflower ear when he was, like, 10. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. (laughs) That's just so scary. Dude's got a singlet on underneath his clothes. Never know, man. Right? You just don't know, man. You don't know when shit's going to go down. It's believed that dyslexia that plagued Dave for so long in school actually helped to make him a more dominant wrestler because, as I had mentioned, it made him ambidextrous. Right. And in wrestling, he could do techniques both sides without a hitch which is uh, not common. Usually, like you said, you preferred one side or the other. He's yeah. better at it. You tried to do both, but like most sports, you try and throw a ball with your left hand if you're right-handed, have fun. Oh, yeah. You're going to look silly. Yeah. I had a I had a buddy growing up that used to do that. Like when we would play wiffle ball uh-huh. or play like if we played like backyard baseball with a tennis ball, he would always throw left-handed. And he was right-handed because he said he didn't want to hurt his arm throwing like a too light of a ball or whatever. Right. But yeah, <laughs> you couldn't tell. Like when in the game, you couldn't, t- you couldn't fucking tell. Huh. Like it was natural. It looked exactly the I same on both did, sides. Yeah, I think really it's about working on it. Yes. I was like say. I can hit left handed. I can I can hit right and left handed. Yeah. I used to do that when I played, but like throwing, that's a different 
Yeah, I think it's, it's a lot more. To I don't that, think it's but... something you can't overcome. For sure, it is. Like we yeah. just we tend to pick one side. We pick a side as a kid, and then I think we just keep doing it with that one, and then we get really mm. good. And if you practiced endlessly with your left hand, you you would definitely continue to get better. And so better you don't think you're biologically predisposed to one hand? I don't know. Like, what if you? Like, what if you are naturally right-handed, but as a kid, your parents kept making you, like, throw left-handed? Like, because there's, there's plenty of dads that do that uh-huh. shit. Because if you're a left-handed pitcher, you yeah. got a much better chance of getting yeah. into the pros. So dads will do that. It's or like, what if a kid grows up and he's, like, a mediocre pitcher left-handed, but he could have been a fucking ace right-handed? Mm-hmm. There's also parents who are embarrassed for their kid being left-handed and forced. I've, I know, actually, someone who... Uh, growing up, their mom made them use their right hand. I don't understand that at all. Why would right? you be embarrassed? So stupid. That? That's so dumb. That's just because so it's different. Because it's a little different. It's actually kind of cool. It's definitely cool, right? Why would you not want to be left-handed? But I do think it's interesting that we tend to choose a side when it comes to like snowboarding, skateboarding, like fakey or regular. You know how that's oh, just yeah. a natural thing. It feels awkward to do it the yeah. other way. Or it's goofy or regular, right? Goofy or regular. Yeah, I'm goofy. I do. I get right foot forward. I'm goofy. Oh, you all are. Right. Yeah, huh. I've just always ridden like that. The other way feels weird for me. I feel like I can't balance as good. Yeah, that's strange. I guess it, it maybe it is just genetic. I don't maybe. know. I don't know if you could ever be as good on the other side. Mm-mm. No. <laughs> <Nah>. <laughs> My dad, actually, funny story. We went snowboarding. The first, he'd always skied, and I, I started snowboarding. My God, snowboarding. And so Bitch. he's like, you know what? He's like, you know what? I'm going to try the snowboarding thing. He goes, and the first time he tried it, uh, he they gave him the wrong side board. Like, and he's like, he just rolled with it. He's like, he, he was, fi- I think he's goofy yeah and he went regular oh no and was trying his first time ever to snowboard was doing backwards oh my god plowing into some lady (laughs) dude he's lucky he didn't like uh sink an edge like i did oh catch an edge oh my gosh dude yeah i did that shit wipe some lady some lady that was like the most decked out woman on the fucking mountain was like head to toe had the fanciest gear and everything like probably had a lot of money and he wiped her out <laughs> and he got up and he's like i'm so sorry i could tell you she was just a she was not she was happy not. she was kept dressing him down and he's like at a certain point he's like fuck you because he's yeah, like i've said i'm sorry fucking 50 times what more do you want me to do for you yeah really yeah and so that's just people who pay for everything right they yeah. just get everything goes yeah. their way yeah. They're used to that. Yeah, accidents happen out there. Absolutely. I got my wrist plowed into my buddy, all... and I have a gnarly scar from snowboarding. That was my fault, though, because yeah. I tried to do some stupid trick, and I landed, and my hands were on the ground, and he was right behind me, plowed right into me. Oh. I was lucky I didn't die, dude, because like, he hit me full force with this, the edge of a snowboard on my wrist. That's where that like, yeah, looks I like see a shark it. bit me on my wrist. Yeah, It was deep, too. If they would, it, Right on my wrist, like where yeah. all the important shit is. Exactly. Yeah. Dude, you're lucky it went like perpendicular to the veins mm-hmm. yeah yeah anyways rough. let's get back on track all right uh rising as quickly as dave wa- was in one of the world's toughest sports didn't go to his head however if someone happened to meet him they would never know he was always humble and even keel yeah we talked about <clears throat> his character mark started wrestling because it was mandatory in seventh grade pe class at the time which if i found interesting how times have changed mandatory uh, mandatory in the area i guess up in oregon back in the uh, what year would this have been? Probably the 70s. Yeah, that's, that's yeah, awesome. The 70s. Um, there was even a tournament in which all boys were required to compete in, in PE. Mark's, wow. Mark's, required to? <laughs> yeah. And I thought it was interesting. Mark said that he always got butterflies every single time he wrestled, no matter how many matches he had done through his life. It was I can see that. The same. Yeah. I, that's, 
stuff that I've done a million times, I still get butterflies. You know what I think it is? I think it's just, uh, if you naturally have a competitive nature, you get butterflies no matter what. Like Mm -hmm. I still get butterflies when I'm going, like if I'm playing ping pong against somebody, I'm gonna get a little bit of butterflies till the game starts. Like it's just whatever. It's just, I'm competitive and I want to win. And yep. if you want to win, you're gonna you're gonna have a little bit of a nerve mm-hmm. nervous reaction. Thinking about what if I don't win? That's yeah. gonna be horrible. <laughs> that's gonna be horrible. Yeah, dude, I'm not I'm gonna have guy. fun. I'm that guy. I'm not, <laughs> the guy that's not fun to play against stuff with because I'm, I take it way too serious. But I love those people. <laughs> yeah, it, they make you better. I don't want to play you if you don't want to win. Exactly. What fun is that? Exactly. Let's let's try to win here. Right. <laughs> Mark uh, would win every PE tournament with no technique but raw strength and athleticism early on. He joined the wrestling team shortly after. Although he didn't have the same passion for wrestling that his brother did, he actually uh, gravitated more towards gymnastics, which is what he had done first. Right. I think it helped him, though. Oh, 100%. Helped him get strong. Much like uh, Dave's dyslexia helped him with wrestling, I think Mark's, there's no doubt about it, that him getting really good at at, uh, gymnastics, that's known to to translate very well to jujitsu, to wrestling, Mm -hmm. if if you're a gymnast. Dude, Just the body flexibility, the strength, core strength you have. Honestly. Oh, for sure. Seriously. Like, if you took gymnastics and went into football, basketball, you would be agile as hell. Basketball. basketball. I guarantee you, you can jump higher if you've been doing gymnastics for a while. Oh, my God, You know, just like that kind of, the tension your ligaments must have. And, like, the the muscle, like, the core strength that you have. It's got to be insane. He said that he became flexible enough to do the splits and strong enough to do 55 pull-ups after being in gymnastics. 55 pull-ups? God That's dang. no joke. And yeah. do the splits? Yeah. Imagine you do the 55th pull-up and then you drop to the splits. <laughs> then you just get up and walk away. Yeah. <laughs> Literally, mic drop. <laughs> what more do I have to do? Right. <clears throat> Some muscle-ups? Right. You probably uh, could do it. If you can do 55 pull-ups, you can do a damn muscle-up, right? Yeah. you got to be able to. Oh, for to. sure, for sure. Uh, he was the 1976, speaking of Mark, the 1976 Northern California age group all-around gymnastics champion for 15 to 16. So that's how good he was. That was Mark? That was Mark. Yeah. Yeah, Dave never did gymnastics as far as I know. Right. Um, he, he uh, as we said, he attributes a lot of his latter success in wrestling to his gymnastics. Eventually, Mark would quit gymnastics in large part because of his brother's success in wrestling. And this is, shows a lot about the difference in their character. Mark was much more ego-driven and... Mm-hmm. A lot of the stuff he later did was just trying to keep up with his brother, I believe. You know, you know what, what? Like, he couldn't stand all the attention that Dave was getting. He wasn't yes. getting the same attention back for gymnastics that Dave was getting for wrestling. Everybody adored Dave because he was so badass well, at wrestling. it's a man's sport, though. Wrestling is. is a man's sport. Like, that's just how, the way it is. That's just the way it is. Like, men in gymnastics are not going to get as much respect. I'm not saying it's easier. Right. No, no. But they're just not going to get as no. much spe- respect from other men. And if your brother is dominating in a man's sport... You're going to have men's men around you all the time, and it's going to drive you. You're going to be like, damn, I want a little bit of that. Yeah. Now think about this. What if the roles were reversed? What if Mark took wrestling and Dave took gymnastics? I don't think Dave crosses over to do wrestling. No, that's what I'm saying. Their character's different. Their character's different, right? Yeah. Dave Mark, did what Dave wanted to do, and I don't yes. think he let others influence his decisions exactly. at all. You know? Dave would have been just as happy in gymnastics, and he probably would have been a damn gold medalist in that. Yeah, and he would have been like, "I'm happy. This is." This I think is Dave where I'm would have would have been great at anything because he was just that type that if he had a passion for it, he was going to learn the ins and outs of it. He's just yep. one of those dudes. I think you could throw him in any era. Any era. There's people like this. Yeah, you know what I mean. No matter, regardless of circumstance, I think he could have had a horrific childhood. Mm-hmm. And it's just like there's something about this guy, like a Mickey Mantle character. It's yeah, like it's the like people talk about him in that. any era in any situation, and I think he was going to succeed. Yeah. He was going to f- go beyond others. You yep. know, Very there's true. special people like that out there. I, I believe he was one of them. It's the attitude, man. The attitude makes a huge difference. And I think, uh, you know, we just keep kind of shitting on Mark in a sense, but like Mark, I think if he didn't have Dave as a brother, I don't know if he would have ever been special in anything. 
I think he was driven mm. by 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 Dave's success and saw the line of success, uh, the path to take there. Yeah, and was and was really motivated because he didn't want to be like the inferior younger brother. You exactly. Know? He couldn't just be like state champion. He had to go on to win a gold because his brother won gold. You yeah, know, like it had. Yeah. He was, that he was driven by that. Definitely. Which um, is which is healthy in a way too. Yeah. By now, Dave uh, was getting collegiate offers offers from everybody because he was basically the best high school wrestler mm-hmm. around. Um, Mark began hanging out with bad influences and smoking weed around this time. One of these friends got arrested for stealing a, a, a check out of a car, forging it and attempting to cash it. And Mark happened to be with him at the time and also got arrested. Mm. Um, getting arrested was a wake up call for Mark. He quit gymnastics and enrolled in Tang Sudo. After four months training, Mark and Dave got into a fight at their mother's house, and Mark qu- learned quickly that his Tang Sudo was no match for Dave's wrestling. And you know how Dave does. He took, oh, him, you to the, knew, took him to the ground, dude, beat him up. You know that's coming, right? It's like, oh, I'm doing martial. I'm doing a type of martial arts. You're doing a type of martial arts. Oh, Let's see. Sure. Dude, and your brother's This is too, like the early days of know, UFC, man. Dude, they wanted he, to see who, what was the Mark superior. Probably, Mark probably went to like a week of classes and was like, let's go, Dave. Right? Let's go. <laughs> <laughs> I'm going to fucking spin and kick you to the head, right. bitch. Dave's like, what? Dave grabs his ankle and like fucking twists it around his head or some shit. <laughs> Before he could even spit the words out, he's on yeah. his back. <clears throat> Mark then signed up for wrestling at Ashland High School and never turned back. So he, he said he'd done a little bit of wrestling, but now he's like committed now. Yeah, yeah. Um, Dave Schultz's senior year was considered by most experts as the most successful senior year in U.S. high school wrestling history. So um, winning first place in the prestigious Great Plains Freestyle Tournament qualified him to compete in the U.S. international team. Um, to BC tournament in Soviet Georgia. So yeah, he's like we mentioned. Every college is wanting a piece of Dave. They're oh, trying yeah. to do anything they can do to get him because he's just dude is just prolific. Um, the Tbilisi tournament is considered by many experts in the wrestling community as the toughest tournament in the world. Schultz would go on to earn a silver medal and was the highest placing American at the tournament. During his timing, um, uh, due to the timing of Tbilisi. Schultz was not able to compete in high school tournaments that he needed to compete in to qualify for the state California state championships, but his coach, Ed Hart, successfully petitioned the state coaches to allow him to compete. Wrestling two classes above his normal division, he pinned all of his opponents in the state championships, but the last, whom he defeated 12-1 to in the final match. So yeah. proved his dominance in California as well. Oh, yeah. Later that year, he won his first national title by winning the U.S. National Open Greco-Roman Championships and won the award for the most falls in the least amount of time. Wow. <clears throat> Yeah, the dude was like you said, prolific. Yeah, there was there was very few contests he entered, especially in his early days, like college years, that he lost, right, or didn't yeah. come out with some sort of some sort of trophy medal. Mm-hmm. Mark didn't have the same instant instant and constant success that his older brother had early on, because he didn't have the he didn't have the, he didn't have the time. He, he didn't put he didn't put in the time that Dave put in. He, yeah, I mean, he was putting the not at maybe he didn't have the prior time that Dave had. Yeah, so that's not, what I'm he wasn't in the sport as long, but he was still putting in the time on the mat. But I, I just think he was less focused on the techniques that Dave was. You know, Dave was like mm-hmm. like we said, technician, which I think was really what helped him the most in success. After one six, uh, after one semester at Ashland High, he transferred back to Palo Alto, but was declared ineligible, ending the year with a four and six record. As a senior, he did not win any tournaments until the state qualifiers, where he won the league region section and the state he's the only california high school state champion wrestler never to win a regular season tournament so he just kind of but that's like, just because he missed time right right i mean he it seemed would've... like it clicked for him one day you know it's like he was kind of struggling struggling and then yeah. boom like maybe he added the techniques he needed he already had the physical abilities obviously right. i think he was a much better athlete than his brother uh mark was mark overall yeah i would say he was yeah i think if you if you gave 
his like physical traits to to Dave. Dave would have been oh unquestionably God. the greatest wrestler of all time. Like he, not that Dave had a bad body for it, but right. Mark was like a freak athlete on top yep. of you know, if you add that to, to it's like the Dave's the wrestling techniques. mind went to Dave and the right. wrestling body went to Mark. Yeah. <laughs> it's a cruel god. <laughs> <laughs> but yet they both were still two of the greatest oh, yeah. wrestlers ever. So Yeah, for sure. In college, Dave was a three-time NCAA American, All-American, first at Oklahoma State, then twice at the University of Oklahoma. In 1982, he was the 167-pound weight class NCAA champion, defeating Mike Sheets from Oklahoma State University in the finals. <clears throat> His career collegiate record was 91-8, and 30-4 and at Oklahoma, and 61-4 and at the University of Oklahoma. Jesus. That's pretty fucking good when you're talking... You know, NCAA, like... Hell yeah. You know... Because you know you're going to have bad days. You're going to have days you feel like shit. Or you're going to have people that are just going to be able to outpower you. wrestling the you. best of the best, yeah. yeah. So to, to be 61 and 4 and 30 and 4 in two different colleges. That's crazy. Um, Mark Schultz attended UCLA and went 18 and 8 in his freshman year. He transferred to the University of Oklahoma, redshirted, and in the following three years, 1981 to 1983, won three NCAA championships. So they're both just doing very... They're They're... A prolific duo, the brothers, the Schultz brothers. Right, and they're going wherever they want at this time, too. Yeah. Because didn't didn't Dave go to UCLA for a minute? Dave went over with his brother for yeah. a minute, yeah. And then they were like, eh, this wrestling program sucks. <laughs> we're <laughs> we're out of here. It's like right. they could literally like call up anybody, right? And then Pretty they went much. to Oklahoma. Yeah, they could bounce around uh, wherever they need. Because well, weight is a big thing with wrestling, too. So like, mm -hmm. you really don't want to cut more than you're comfortable cutting because that's one of the toughest parts about that sport. That's what separates yeah, mental toughness. Weight. The mental toughness of a, a college wrestler is honestly, I, I I don't think there's anything tougher. Hmm. Like gymnast, you said gymnastics. We're not saying it's harder. I think it is. Like I'm sure gymnastics are extremely hard. Yeah. At the higher levels, but wrestling, you're you're not only talking like the grind that you have to do, the overcoming of injuries, but then the weight cutting too. Yeah. Like there's nothing like that. They all say like as tough as the sport is itself. The cutting of that weight is beyond tough. Like it takes. I, I believe we've it. seen people melt down. Like when we watched the early seasons of The Ultimate Fighter, there was dudes that just straight up quit. Like this is their whole life, their dream. They're on TV. They they have a chance to make a six figure contract, and the weight cutting was ended up like they just couldn't do it. Like yeah. they get to the point where they're like drained. They've been in a sauna all day, and they, yeah. they need to lose another four pounds. And that four pounds decides the fate of their their life after that because they just can't right. do it. Now you've seen people shuffle up to the weight or to the scale like on the verge of death because the, the weight cutting thing is honestly, it's a big debate in the community nowadays when we're talking about overall health of someone, right? Like dehydrating yourself to that level. And then you're about to compete. Not smart. I mean, you only no. have so long to rehydrate, you know, and a lot of people that a lot of sports, they don't allow them to do, um, IVs either. Right. So yeah, that was a, a big part of it. So that's why they would jump around from schools too. If like they didn't have the, the right, if that program already had a wrestler, they liked at a certain weight and that's the weight they wanted to wrestle at. They would, they would go to a different school or, yeah. you know, that type of stuff, the details of it. That's true. <clears throat> um, when Mark was the NCAA champion in his sophomore year at 167, his junior year, he moved up to 177 where he faced two-time NCAA champion Ed Bannock and the former NCAA champion Matt Rice. Um, Bannock was on track to become the first four-time NCAA champion in history. However, Schultz beat Bannock 16-8 to in one of, if not the best, NCAA finals matches of all time and was named Outstanding Wrestler of the Tournament. In his senior year, he went undefeated and set the University of Oklahoma record for most victories in a single season without a loss. He was also named University of Oklahoma's Big 8 medallion winner for Outstanding Senior Male Student Athlete. 
So Mark doing his thing. Yeah. <clears throat> so we get these two. He's no slouch, that's for sure. Oh, hell no. <clears throat> they were both, like we said, using their different abilities to their advantage. Mark, were, much yeah. more of a physical. Not that Dave wasn't physical. That's his physical sport. But Mark, yeah. like, over-the-top physicality, like, oh, yeah. just manhandling people. Mm-hmm. Dave beating them technically most of the time. So we've talked about their their childhoods, their rise to the top of wrestling in college, and they're heading towards trying to take it to the next level with with uh, world titles and Olympic medals. Mm-hmm. And we'll go into the childhood of someone that they're later going to cross path with cross paths with that ends up making this a tragic story. Exactly. A guy by the name of John DuPont. He was born November 22nd, 1938 in Philadelphia. He shares a birthday with Bruce Lee and Bill Nye the Science Guy, two of the coolest people ever. So I guess Damn. this had to balance out with this douchebag. <laughs> Bill Nye the Science Guy. I don't think I don't Bill, think John Bill, was so Bill, much of a douchebag as he was. Bill, it's just Bill, Bill. <laughs> Bill Nye the, the Science, science guy. guy. I think his, he was just... Uh, he was just mentally ill, man. Yeah. I He's mean, he did, have, he did have He's kind just... of a shitty upbringing, really. I mean, he had all the money in the world, but that doesn't buy you everything. No. Doesn't no, buy you absolutely not. All the time. <clears throat> yeah, so he was born in Philadelphia. He was the youngest of four children of William DuPont Jr. and Jean Austin. He grew up at Lister Hall, a mansion built by his maternal grandfather on more than 200 acres of land that was given to his parents by at their wedding by said grandfather. Wow. So, yeah. I 200 mean, acres? Yeah, and then it expanded shortly after that. It would just end a up being, wedding gift. It would end up being over eight hundred acres. That's I mean, incredible. this and this is just beautiful land too. That in the documentary, yes, you see the sprawling. Just it is. It's, it's like gorgeous. their own world. Is what the police there would would basically the wrestlers, the police, everybody that got to visit this farm, right? Would get would say the same thing. It was like literally like their own world there. They did what they wanted. Like yep. He would end up as an adult just walking around the farm, hunting whatever he felt like hunting, shooting whatever. Like he he. Did what he wanted. Driving cars into ponds. <clears throat> mm-hmm. <laughs> Twice. Yeah. Let's see how he got to be such a wild person as an okay. adult because his childhood was a little strange. Both right. his parents' families had immigrated from Europe to the United States at the beginning of the 19th century and became highly successful. The DuPont family has been one of the richest families in America since the mid-19th century when it founded its fortune in the gunpowder business. In the late 19th and early 20th centuries, it expanded its wealth through the chemical industry and the automotive industry with substantial interest in General Motors and various other corporations. So they basically hit it big with uh, gunpowder early on, and then they kept investing in things that kept blowing up. And, smart. Yeah, they made some smart investments. They sure did. During the 1920s and 1930s, the couple acquired more land and developed Lissiter Hall Farm for thoroughbred breeding, showing, and racing. The farm was now around 800 acres like we'd said, his mother retained Lissiter Hall Farm after the couple divorced in 1941. She added a dairy herd of cattle and bred Welsh ponies at the farm as well. So this thing. <clears throat> Speaking of ponies, I swear <laughs> to God, you cannot timing. write this shit. You cannot. <laughs> the shed that we record in is right next to my wife's horses. And they yeah. just literally heard us talking about horses, <laughs> I guess, like, and got excited. We're horses. <laughs> <laughs> We're horses too, guys. <laughs> Got my horses in the back. Oh, no. <laughs> Not that song again. Michael brought it up before this, and I told him God he fucked it. up, dude. I'm going to keep God singing damn old that town shit road. it's catchy. <laughs> I got my horses in the back. <laughs> I do, man. You can hear them. I hear them. <clears throat> His mother retained Lissiter Hall Farm. So, like we said, I, um, the parents divorced. John's du parents or John's parents, John du, John du parents. John's du parents. <laughs> John's du parents. They do. They divorce. <laughs> so he ends up growing up with his mother on this eight hundred acre farm with dairy yeah. dairy cows and racing horses and you name it. And basically isolation. It's got its though. own. Yeah, it's got its own ponds. It's got everything. 
It's insane. I heard a story. It was in the documentary. One of the one of the wrestlers shared it, and they said that he basically was in isolation until he was like thirteen. Yeah, that's I some doubt serious he ever, formative I, years. I right doubt there. he ever left the farm, and it was his parents divorced when he was two. So he never really got to know his father. His, he was never close with his father. Right. He was said as an adult that, like, as far as he'd have to like schedule an appointment to even talk to his father, and it was like his dad. And then was even then, he didn't want to talk to him half the time. Right. Um, yeah, yeah, he wasn't really interested in talking to John. Mm-hmm. And so from the time he was two, um, he was living with his mom on this farm, and his siblings were older. He had two older sisters, Jean and Evelyn, and an older brother named Henry E. I. Dupont, and a younger half brother. Um, born of their father's second second marriage, but he was not close with uh, his siblings growing up either because they were so much older than him. Right. His, young, his youngest sibling, so the closest one to him, was still eleven years older than him. We talked about this earlier yeah. in, the, in the episode. The gap, you know, that's and how you're not gap, real man. close to your siblings when they're that big. That's like a, a un- that's like an uncle and nephew type mm-hmm. relationship, more so. Yeah, so it was basically him and his mommy. You know, you yeah. know we've seen a lot of that. A lot of times that goes bad, like Ed Gein, and you know when it's. <laughs> <laughs> we can think of a few. Yeah, uh, there's a few. What, Ed Kemper. Yeah, yeah, there's a few out there's there. There's a few scenarios. Um, inside his mansion, Dupont was an incredibly lonely child. His father was rarely at home, and his siblings were far older than him. And that's before his parents divorced and his dad left. I'm guessing he was rarely home. And, um, and the only friend he thought he had was his son of a sh- was the sh- the son of a chauffeur. Although in time, Dupont would find out that his mother had paid the boy to pretend to like him. God damn it! Fuck. That's why would you let him find that out? Right. <laughs> Jesus, mom. Um, it didn't help that uh, innately Dupont was eccentric to say the least. John's father wanted little to do with him after he grew up. A uh, quote from John: "I've spent a lifetime looking for a father." John basically grew up on the farm with just his mother and was often mocked in school for being awkward and having a stutter. So yeah, he also had a stutter growing up. Um, he would graduate from Haverford School in 1957. He did participate in wrestling and swimming at Haverford. Hmm. A little foreshadowing there. Is that a private school? <clears throat> I think so. Makes sense. And I'm sure he was still at the bottom of the team. Oh. Probably didn't. He was probably just the guy that they beat up on. Uh, come on, man. You don't think he could buy a starting he, spot? He's. Uh, you got to watch the videos. He's uh, not an athlete. Right. He attended the University of Pennsylvania and withdrew before completing his freshman year. He later attended college in Miami, Florida, where he studied under and was mentored by scientist Oscar T. Auer. Auer. I don't know that guy, but apparently he's a big guy, big name, because it was thought up enough to mention that he studied under this guy. Right. I'm not familiar either. Yeah. Um, also competed on the swim team while at Miami University and dreamed of one day competing in the Olympics. He then decided to try his luck at competing in the pentathlon. He hoped that this sport would give him a better shot at competing in the Olympics because it's kind of a, a sport for the rich, mm-hmm. and not as many people can really practice to compete for that because right. it, inclu- it involves swimming, horseback riding, pistol shooting, and fencing. <laughs> that is so rich, right? That's yeah. Like... <laughs> How many kids you know that aren't rich that are doing all of those activities on a regular basis? Dude, just fencing in general. Horseback riding. If you're doing polo and fencing, and those fencing. Two. Like that's <laughs> and pistol shooting and pistol shooting, yeah, just for fun, just riding but, around but doing luckily, all three. But luckily for John, like he had access to millions of dollars, and um, all he had to go do is mommy, yeah. And she went ahead and put in a shooting range, a cross country course, an Olympic swimming pool, um, all on the property on mm. the Dupont Farm. Nice. Went ahead and put in everything he needed. Um, he still was declared not Olympic material, however. Hmm. Shocking. Even, even after having all of the resources available to him, like I said, not an athlete. Right. He graduated from the University of Miami in 1965 with a Bachelor of Science degree in zoology. Interesting okay. path to take. 
I wonder why. When you want to be an Olympic athlete, yeah, become I, a zoologist. It, yeah, is that, what's, is that the normal <laughs> path? He did whatever. He, he, he just got into did whatever. whatever he thought yeah. he could make a name in. I think yeah. he's just looking for an identity. You know. Yeah, I wonder how much. Uh, he just wanted respect. I just I yeah. got no respect. I wonder how much influence people in his life had at this time because you saw when he saw when he idolized someone, he took on that persona. Mm-hmm. So I wonder if there was it someone. It would become Dave at one point. Yes. I wonder if there was someone in his life at that time who was like big into zoology. Maybe his quote unquote best friend or someone he wanted to be best friends with was going yeah. into zoology. Well, he ended and up he making was like, his well, own. I'll go into zoology. Yeah. I remember he makes his own museum on the farm and like yeah. he's got all these animals that he had shot and like had stuffed and whatnot. Right. And, yeah, he got really into birds. Yeah, he did. He had a lot of interest, but I guess you can you hunting. can have a lot of interest when you got a lot of time on your hands and a lot of money. Yeah, it's not like you have to work. Dude, imagine right. if we didn't have to work. <laughs> right? I'd have a museum too, shit. <laughs> In 1972, DuPont founded the Delaware Museum of Natural History and installed, installed himself as the director. He also wrote four books about birds during this period. <laughs> we it, need to get those. <laughs> DuPont's bird book. Right. God. You want to go to sleep? That's like a sleeping pill right I would love to read that. Maybe I'll review it on Higher Thoughts. There you go. (laughs) I can find one. Yeah. DuPont went on to compete, uh, complete a doctorate in natural science from Villanova in 1973. By the time he was 30, he realized that he was never going to actually compete in the Olympics. He finally came to that realization, huh? He'd also suffered a severe injury to the testicles. Yeah, this is an interesting story that Dave found out later on. Um, when he was living on the DuPont farm and DuPont mm-hmm. got drunk one night and actually finally confided in Dave, or in, not Dave, but uh, in Mark. Yeah. He said this is one of the only moments that Mark ever felt he was being genuine and not being deceitful was he broke down and told him this story of how he was horseback riding. Yeah. I believe in his late teen years and got thrown for the, from the horse onto a fence on the oh. property and ended up losing his testicles. It was that severe. Oh. And he had, he had like plastic testicles and he had to inject... Uh, testosterone yeah. every day so that his yeah. hormone levels were right and it made so much sense to Mark he's like that's why he's all over the place that's why he's uh, he's also seems feminine at times it might have been and due to his, his hormones yeah maybe he's not the taking place. the shots or whatever yeah there was days where he'd forget to take it right yeah. I mean well forget because he's on a million other substances as well that's, at any yeah, given time that's true because uh, Mark also witnessed some uh, some drug abuse with cocaine and whatnot. yeah yeah uh, but uh, yeah, so he had suffered this uh, injury after being thrown from the horse. In 1976, John was given a manager spot on the U.S. Olympic pentathlon team due to all of his contrib- contributions to the team. This is all he wanted, man. Like he, so he didn't even have to compete, which I don't know if he really wanted that. He just wanted the image, you know. So like this gave him what he wanted. He was allowed to play the part of an actual Olympic he, uh, Olympian. He got to wear the mm-hmm. outfit. He was in the team photo. So then he just got to brag to people like, look, I was an Olympic swimmer. You know, like, right. look, here I am in the picture. I got the outfit. And that's right. That's me right there. Right. You'll never see a picture of me swimming in the outfit. but Right, right. <clears throat> he began uh, inviting Olympians to train at the farm or team, catcher, team fox catcher facilities. First it was swimmers and pentathlon athletes. And obviously mm-hmm. later it would become wrestling. But the fox catcher thing came from his father. He didn't even come up with the name. He was... Not original enough to do that, but his father mm-hmm. had named certain facilities like the horse uh, racing facilities there, Fox Catcher, because it's one of his favorite uh, pastimes being his father. I did not know that John didn't come up foxes. with that. I thought he came up with that. And you know what? I've always nope. I've always thought that was a cool name. Yeah, right? But I was like, there's too much I was credit. Like, God damn it. <laughs> the one cool thing about it. <laughs> right? No, his dad was really into hunting foxes, apparently. And oh, okay. Named a lot of his facilities, team, you know, 
not team, but uh, fox catcher. They had cool gear, dude. Like yeah. with the the fox like sprinting on yes. it, and then it just said fox catcher. Dude, that dude I would rock facility, one of those hoodies right now, bro. You know what? He had a he had a a knack for design, I guess, because they, even all the wrestlers were like, "This was the fucking sickest wrestling facility of all time." Yeah. What he ends up putting in. And I don't know if I maybe it was him, maybe it was someone else. Maybe he had an architect on on staff. Or True, or maybe he. he I'm sure he was getting input from the wrestlers too. Yeah, but still, like even with them telling you, like you'd still have to have a knack for being able to design this and set it up properly. But it was yeah. ridiculous. It's also in the documentary you can see extensive oh, tons footage, of original of this footage. Yeah. So why cool. were they videotaping so much? Just just for the hell of it? I think this is what they did. I think also uh, he was such a egomaniac, John. That he just like wanted to be always seen strutting around, you know, with all these athletes, yeah, like acting like he was one of them. He had film crews following so him around, he, dude. He was one yeah. of those guys that paid to have documentaries made about him and stuff, and his influence on That's the Olympics point. and American uh, athletics. Because there are some amazing shots in that documentary, and I'm like, God damn, these guys recorded everything. He literally had fucking film crews follow him around all the time. That's yeah. why, because he wanted to be a big deal. <laughs> and when you got the money, people will do what you want. Yeah. By now, John had uh, gotten. Quite cushy with the new township police force as well. Yeah, so on mm-hmm. the farm, the police were using his facilities. They the gun range he put in when he wanted to be a pentathlon athlete. Yep, they were using that gun range for their training. Dude, was um, he... he actually bought them bulletproof vests. I was about to say he provided them yeah. with stuff like that. Oh it, yeah, I, I tell me that's not a conflict of interest. <laughs> that's a huge conflict, and of it interest, became a problem man. because a lot of reports of his erratic, violent behavior later on were ignored by the police force there yes. because he was. All cushy and uh, in cahoots with them. Well, these cops are showing up wearing wearing gear that he bought them. <laughs> right. Like, what the hell are they they're supposed to do? Respond to his violent right fucking uh, event where he's got a gun and they're wearing his vests. <laughs> right. He could have a gun pointed at me like, take that vest off. That's mine. You right. son of a bitch. <laughs> <laughs> like, yeah, the cops. The cops, like, in a way, didn't have a leg to stand on. He also provided them with radios and access to his helicopter. So you know, someone. Yeah, you got to be In the Pennsylvania with that area stuff, is on the run, and the helicopter's chasing them down. That's DuPont's helicopter. That's you got to be careful with that kind of crazy, stuff, man. man. In law enforcement, yeah, I'm sure can. they learned from this, I'm yeah, sure, because they caught some hell after this thing went down. Yeah, what's up, creepers? Well, it's that time of year again. Valentine's Day is upon us. Luckily for you, we have a new sponsor, Anna Luisa. They offer beautiful jewelry of exceptional quality at a fair price, and they are 100% carbon neutral. How can you get any better? You get a beautiful piece of jewelry and you're not harming the planet in the process. They offset 100% of their carbon emissions, starting with the sourcing of their raw materials all the way to the disposal of the pieces. Everything is in limited batches, ensuring the highest production standards while eliminating excessive waste. The, the prices of the jewelry start at just $39 with no luxury markup. The long-lasting pieces are crafted with care from the best noble metals, and they offer a 365-day warranty to replace or refund any piece that doesn't meet your expectations. And because all you need is love, and jewelry on sale, of course, Ana Luisa is having a Valentine's Day sale right now. This sale is 15% off all products. And the last day to guarantee shipping before Valentine's Day for the U.S. is on February 10th, and international February 8th, Monday. So you got to act fast to get that 15% off all products. I actually already ordered my wife a necklace off of AnnaLuisa.com. It's called the Mish. It's 14 karat gold plated with a green adventure in stone. I received it. I can't wait to give it to her. It feels so high quality and she's going to love the fact that it's carbon neutral. So order some jewelry for yourself or for your significant other this Valentine's Day and know that there was no sketchy business practices behind the making of it. It makes you feel that much better when you wear it. 
Um, and right now, the Valentine's Day sale is still going on. Use our link in the description or go to analuisa.com. That's A-N-A-L-U-I-S-A. A-N-A-L-U-I-S-A. Analuisa.com. Go there now to save 15% off all products. You got to have an unbiased police force. And I know that's impossible to have, but to this extent, it's just too much. Half half or more of the police force there was also using his uh, farm for hunting. He would let them come and hunt deer. They would all just be riding around in the back of a pickup on DuPont's estate hunting deer. Yeah. You know, so. Yeah, you can't tell me they're not going to look the other way with just about anything he does that's, that's illegal. Oh, absolutely. Um, back to the Schultz brothers. After college, the Schultz brothers looked to take their wrestling abilities to the world stage. In 1984, Mark and Dave both won Olympic gold in wrestling events. An am- amazing feat considering the lack of funding that American wrestlers had compared to the, to the Russians and Eastern, other Eastern Bloc countries. Absolutely. The following year, Mark won the world championships and faced competitors from all over the Euro- uh, Eastern Bloc countries who had boycotted the 1984 Olympics. Oh, that's why they won gold, because... The- they were they boycotted it. The Russians did. Yeah. God damn it, Russians. We'll take it. We'll take yeah, it. We'll take it, man. Fuck it. Hey, we'll you bowed it. out of the competition. Yeah. What do you want? It's not our fault. We could have beat you. We don't uh, know. Yeah, we could have. <laughs> <laughs> it's like Drago versus Rocky, dude. <laughs> Even with all of their success, Mark was still struggling to make it financially at the time. USA Wrestling did little to nothing to provide the wrestlers financially. They were not paid a regular salary to be a part of the team. Russia took care of their wrestlers financially so they would be able to focus solely on wrestling while American wrestlers had to take low-paying jobs as coaching assistants at colleges. In 1983, American wrestlers who placed in the top seven in the world's tournament received only $1,500. Dave, who got first place in 1983, received $5,000. Wow. So that's supposed to get you through the next... $5,000. Yeah, a whopping five grand. Don't spend is, it all in one nice, place, Dave. It's nice, but if that's supposed to carry you through your year, you know, training, food... God forbid you have an injury. No, that's just not that's not gonna cut it. That's not gonna cut it at all. No, let be... alone trying to buy like health insurance or <laughs> right. dental. Yeah, forget it. <laughs> um, the desperation on part of the American wrestlers without with uh dreams of winning gold medals left the door open for someone like John DuPont to make an offer they couldn't refuse. So they're basically like ripe for the picking for a guy like this to come along and offer them uh basically a salary. To wrestle for his program. Well, they're already in it, dude. They're already they're already neck deep in this sport. They've right. already committed their lives to it, and yep. then now they feel like they've been thrown a life raft. This does it does seem like the perfect opportunity. Yeah. Who wouldn't take it? Yeah. So it began with a, a phone call in 1986. Mark Mark Schultz received a call from John Dupont. Well, first it was he got a call from someone at a college, right? It was uh, someone at Villanova. Yes. Gave him a call and said that he should be expecting a call from a guy named John Dupont, and he's a big wig, and take him at his word. He means what he says, and he, he's the real deal. He actually does have a lot of money and all this stuff. And yeah. so he basically got like a pre-call. Then he receives the call from John Dupont, who said he was starting up an NCAA Division I wrestling program at Villanova University from scratch and wanted Mark to be his assistant coach. And so he asked what it would take, you know, how much per year mm-hmm. would it cost to get him to become do this job. Right. Mark said only 24000 per year would suffice to do the job. So he was really telling him the bare minimum as far as this is what I need just to, I just want to wrestle and I need to just be able to live. You know? Right. Have a place, a roof over my head and some food. Nothing crazy. And that's super low for John. And he Dupont. says, <laughs> and he said that he, he, he later realized he could have said a whole lot more and he should have said a whole lot more. Yes. Because once he got to Villanova, he realized what a pain in the ass it was. It wasn't going to be as simple as go there, assistant coach, wrestle, and do your thing, and you get paid. He, he then had to be 
like a therapist for John DuPont for a while. It was exactly. It, it was, was a lot much, more involved. Much more strings attached. He thought, okay, DuPont's gonna you know pay for this thing. He wants to get this program going, mm-hmm. and he'll stay out of my hair and let me do my job. No, DuPont was constantly up his ass. When Mark met John, he was far from impressed. DuPont was physically gross and seemed intoxicated. <laughs> I wrote this crime line, by the way. So, <laughs> During the tour of Villanova, however, Mark realized just how much money DuPont had and was willing to spend on wrestling. DuPont had several buildings on the Villanova campus already named after him. So that's how much money he'd been giving to Villanova. He basically ran this school during this time. Oh, yeah, for sure. Uh, Mark learned quickly that at Villanova how strange and manipulative John DuPont could be. There were several awkward drunk, drunken moments between him and DuPont. Um, John was also not supposed to interfere with Mark's duties at Villanova, but he, of course he constantly did. Mark essentially became John's personal assistant and, uh, as he basically ran Villanova himself. Right. Mark became like his manager. Right. He He became like the Villanova sports manager. Mark was (laughs) there to be the assistant wrestling coach, which basically he would become the head coach because Mark or John was not doing. Right. Because John was technically the head coach, right? On paper. Actually, though, there was a but guy that John ended up having Mark fire. At first. We're getting. So there was a head coach there. Very uh, short period of Mark time, Mark was though. brought in to be the assistant coach. Um, and John was there distracting Mark constantly. Mm-hmm. And basically make him run around and do all these duties for him just be on a power trip. Right. DuPont uh, broke every NCAA rule when it came to recruiting wrestlers as well. He made Mark fire the head coach on a whim, which is what we've been leading to. John viewed himself as the head coach, but didn't want to do or know any of the duties <laughs> after this. So he had he had uh, Mark fire the head coach, and then yeah. he basically put himself, DuPont put himself as the head coach, but didn't want to do any of the head coaching shit. He didn't want to clean the mats. He didn't want to right. run the program. He just wanted to have that on the to title. You know, when people look up the program, he wanted him to say, John DuPont, head coach. What I'm guessing is that the head coach that was there that they got fired was probably there before John DuPont, mm-hmm. or at least before he, he took over the operation. He and was. he wasn't going to change for him. He wasn't going to bow no, down no, no, to him because no. he was probably getting a decent salary Actually, from the school, right? Actually, this was discussed in the book, and what it was was he was an underqualified head coach for a, a for a uh, NCAA Division One school wrestling program. He was not capable of it. But he was hired by DuPont because he was basically a yes man that would do whatever DuPont wanted. And even after a while, uh, DuPont got sick of it. I think probably because he wanted to have his name. Oh, shit. First. It's the complete opposite of what I thought. <laughs> right. Yeah. When I thought, when you started saying that, I was like, no, wait, the book brought this up. Okay. I didn't remember that part. And at, yeah. at least Mark speculated that's why he thinks that guy got the job because he didn't, Mark said he, he really didn't think that guy was qualified to be doing that job. Gotcha. And then when he saw Mark and saw someone who actually knew what the hell they were talking about, mm-hmm. he was like, let's get this guy out of here. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that, that's a good point once he hired Mark and realized mm-hmm. Mark was also being a yes-man for him. And yeah. he was actually and qualified he's to be a, a wrestling Right, yeah, and he's connected like to Dave, who mm-hmm. was probably the real prize in, in the midst of all this. John uh, then allowed Mark to choose a training partner to be paid by DuPont in order to help him prepare for the Worlds. Basically, Mark went up to him and asked him, you know, I need someone legit in here to help me prepare for the Worlds. Mm-hmm. So can you hire a guy? We'll call him assistant coach, and I'll just get to wrestle with him all the time so that I can prepare. Right. Um, he let him choose, and Mark chose Dan Chade, who would later be on Team Foxcatcher and play quite a role, and he was in the documentary inter- being interviewed quite a bit. Yeah. We'll talk more about Dan Chade later. Meanwhile, back at the DuPont estate, John had added the res- had added wrestling to the Foxcatcher program, and this is where he builds that 
incredible facility for wrestling that we were talking about. He had a 14,000 square foot state of the art wrestling building built and put into the Fox catcher farm. It costed $600,000 to construct. That's um, incredible. And in, these guys had seen nothing like this too, man. Right. This was the main attraction yeah. for all these wrestlers. I mean, this place had a, a training room with a guy that was fully, uh, fully paid to just basically help them get over injuries and treat them. Basically, like an athlete, uh, what an athletic trainer. Yeah, like a physical trainer. therapist. Yeah, it something had a guy like on that. Staff to do yeah. that. It had a full weight room. It had a, a sauna. It had, you name it, incredible. It had uh, Olympic level mats, which couldn't have been cheap. It had like, I think it was four eighty by 80 mats or something like that, like 80 foot by 80 foot Olympic level mats. Like this, you saw the videos of inside this thing. It was a warehouse with mats. Like it's incredible. There could have been 300 people wrestling at once on these mats. It seemed like it was that big. Mm -hmm. Um, Wrestler Rob Calabrese would be the first to join Fox catcher wrestling program and Mark Schultz, the second. Soon, Dave Schultz would join as well, being paid as an assistant coach while still being paid uh, to coach at Wisconsin as well. So he was Dave was kind of there in and out when he could, but he was right. he was paid by Wisconsin to be a coach, so he couldn't be there all the time. When Mark Schultz won another world championship in 1987, he became the first Olympic champion to add two additional world titles. This time, however, he'd been a part of Team Foxcatcher, and DuPont used it as a means to spread the word about how great Foxcatcher was and really like looked at him as like an object. Like this was started to like where Mark really started to turn. He really never really liked DuPont, but mm-hmm. he saw him as useful for, you know, for his goals in life, trying to get to titles and stuff. But now he's like, I'm getting the goal. I'm meeting the goals that I wanted. I'm winning world titles. I'm working towards more Olympic medals, mm-hmm. but now DuPont's taking credit for all my success. And so like, what is it even worth it? You know, it's well, like, here's the thing though. They're both using each other. They are. Yes, that's true. That is very true. I mean, at this point, Mark can't Mark's be not like, oh, he's using me. Well, well, damn, Mark, like you're using him. You expect him uh, to as your well-being. Too, yeah, I mean, at the he's, same time. of course, Dupont is about Foxcatcher. Yeah, Mark is about Mark Schultz. Mm-hmm. And unfortunately, the reason he's able to uh, live comfortably financially is because right. of Dupont. And so, of course, Dupont's gonna when Mark wins something, he's gonna put Foxcatcher's name on it. Just That's like, fair, dude. That's it, fair. It actually is kind of fair now that I mentioned. Now yeah. that I think about it, but it creeped Mark out, and mm-hmm. he didn't like it. Um, there was a photo shoot that uh, that Dupont made F- Mark do right afterwards, and he put like Foxcatcher all over it, and it was like Mark in like an American, uh, what do you call it, singlet? Yeah. And, like it, there's a picture still out there, but it just creeped him out how he threw Foxcatcher all over it, and it kind of he felt though all the work he'd put in his whole life was kind of, yeah attributed to Foxcatcher as though it was them all along. It's like, I don't know. I see both sides of it. Well, Mark, I mean, Mark was great before Foxcatcher. We understand that. Right. But he is now a part of the He's team. He's a part of Foxcatcher. He is. I mean, NASCAR drivers don't take off all their advertisement shit when they get on the podium after they win. Yes. They're holding uh, up stuff. They're handed a Pepsi. They're handed a Mountain Dew, and whatever we know the fuck that, it is, or and, champagne. And we know that they're the great driver and that, that, that Absolutely. Won it. we know the great driver won it we know mark schultz won That's it we're their not whole life going, they've probably been on a track of some sort he should have known that people weren't looking at it like that they weren't looking at it like oh fox catcher is the only reason mark won this title Hell no we know it's because of his hard work yeah absolutely but it's his ego i guess was yep yep you got it but he also saw creepy sides to dupont before well, there were so creepy there was, sides there was to more to it than than just that yeah maybe if he liked DuPont more, he wouldn't have bothered him the Foxcatcher stuff, but he hated what Mar- what DuPont represented to begin with. So he 
Yeah, knowing think, so much about Foxcatcher is what it, what the problem was. That's why he hated the name on there because right. he hated what Dupont but stood see, for. But see, like most people that saw that picture didn't think twice about that. Right. They probably just saw <clears throat> Mark in a American singlet and was like, "No, oh, awesome, a, a world champion." Yeah. Uh, Mark had a couple quotes about this. He said, "We were his newest trophies. If you didn't want to be displayed on his wall, he would threaten to ruin you." Yeah, I could see that. We got and, some- and he had a lot of power. Yeah. We got some Air Force jets going over right yeah, now. Yeah, we do. I'm pretty close to an Air Force base, by the way. <laughs> so we got horses and jets. <laughs> Real professional out Real here. Real professional. Real professional. We need a $600,000 podcast studio, <laughs> DuPont. Come on. Yeah, where are you at, DuPont? Oh, wait, never mind. <laughs> In the grave. <sighs> Awkward. In the grave. John wanted the wrestlers to refer to him as Eagle because he, this is when he's, he's really going to his head. Mm-hmm. Foxcatcher's got some success to its name now. Yeah. And, uh, yeah, so everybody had to call him Eagle, and there's actually footage of... And they did. Yeah, they did. They there's did. footage of Dave calling him Eagle and uh, uh, Dan Chade calling him Eagle. Mm-hmm. In the, in the, they had a lot of footage of, like, the glory days of Foxcatcher. They looked like they film. were kind of having fun They're for the most part, They're flying around in private right? jets together, joking around with DuPont. Yeah. Um, but, you know, I know DuPont must have sensed it because everybody but Dave... We'll get into this, this uh, era in a little bit, but yeah. it's now that it's on my head... It's on. It's on my mind. It's like, I feel like he must have known that they, there was like a lot of tongue in cheek when they're like, "Hey, Eagle, don't hurt me," you know, like these fucking. There's a lot of patronizing wrestlers. going on. There is patronizing going yeah, on. Yeah, there's sense a lot it. of that. You know, Dupont was not a dumb guy. He right. was weird, eccentric, mm-hmm. but he was also very intelligent. And so, like, he knew like these people were only around him because they had to be, and like. Just like his, his whole mind. life, his whole life, he must have thought back to that kid that his mom paid the butler's son or whatever. Yeah, to be around him, and then he found out it was just he was just around because I was mean, paid. I think that's just that's the. But the exception was Dave. Dave he, was the exception, which we'll get into, the, which made this this so much more tragic. Was that Dave was genuinely like didn't mind Dupont's company and want and like like I think he loved him to an extent, like an uncle did. or something. At a certain, he point. cared for him. He cared for him. Do you think that's the the biggest price that rich people pay is just not knowing if someone really likes them? Yeah, you know what I mean. Like, one of, yeah, one of the bigger like than not everybody trying to sue you all the time. Yeah, exactly. Like most people, and no one respecting you for the hard work. If you do hard work, no one's going to attribute any of your success to that. They're going to say, "Oh, well, you already had money." Or Absolutely, whatever. that's the price you pay, though. Everyone pays a price, I guess, of some sort. But that not knowing, would you rather be poor? <laughs> I'm pretty question. happy being yeah. like where I'm at, man. Yeah, me too. You know, I've really thought about it. And like more money, more problems. You know what I mean? True that. Like, with that being said, hey, tell your friends about Patreon, though. Like, yeah, man. Because <laughs> we're working hard for that money. So we we are working hard for that money. <laughs> uh, yeah. So he he wanted everyone, all the wrestlers, to call him Eagle because he was the Golden Eagle of America, and he even had a bed in his uh, office in the wrestling facilities with sticks like around the bed to resemble a bird's nest. That's how much like he how far. You no, know, now that I think it. about it, he was kind of bird like. Yeah, for sure. He, he, had was, a beak. he had a beak nose. <laughs> he had a beak nose. For sure. Yeah, he was very bird-like. <laughs> yeah, you know? he, he was, had, right? Had some wings to him, man. Yeah. He, <laughs> <laughs> he had that bird build. Yeah. yeah, man. This was a creepy part of the book. Um, Mark claims that uh, around this time, DuPont was re- getting really into wrestling himself, mm-hmm. by the way. He wanted to be one of the wrestlers. He would he would wrestle with them, and they'd obviously have to be very careful not to break him. Yeah. Um, because uh, he's up there in age, he's quite he a bit older than these guys. At this time. Yeah, and uh, he came up with his own wrestling move. He called it the Foxcatcher Five. It was actually he had heard a story of a wrestler grabbing someone by the balls, and it was called the Five Finger Something. And so he just added Foxcatcher to it. 
And it's essentially his favorite move was just to grab a wrestler by the balls. Hmm. I think it's because he wasn't good at wrestling in general, and he's going against Olympic-level wrestlers. Yeah, you got to take any advantage you can get, right? Yeah, I mean, do you think... I mean, there's a lot of allegations that he was gay. Do you think there's any Um, clout to that? I don't... He was briefly married, we have to mention. It lasted like a month. And it could have been for an image if he was gay, but I, I don't know. I think... I think he was effeminate partially because of his yeah. hormone levels, because of the testicle thing. Mm-hmm. I think he was very strange. I think he latched on to really um, like masculine men because he wanted to be like them. But I don't know if he was actually gay. There I don't know ha- if I buy that. I mean, the movie Foxcatcher, which was Mark had a, a it legit painted him that way, huh? Mark had a legit complaint because the movie really painted uh, Mark Schultz to be like this. I don't know. It was like almost like he was afraid of Dupont or something in the movie. It almost felt like. He looked up to Dupont so much, but it did, in in his own words, and when you read this book and you see it, it just didn't seem like that was really the way it was. It hmm. seemed like Mark was the alpha around Dupont all the time, and he really couldn't stand Dupont, but he was just yeah. there because he had to be. But that's also Mark's point of view. Yes, that's true. And it's also, it would be stupid to bite the hand that feeds too. I feel like, but when I watched the footage from the documentary Team Foxcatcher on Netflix, it looks like everybody kissed his ass to me. But in a different way they weren't mm-hmm. they didn't fear him when he walked in the no, room absolutely didn't when he fear walked him. in the room he was clearly at the bottom of like the food chain you know oh, what i mean like obvi- yeah but they still treated him good they kissed his ass in yeah. a way you would kiss a boss you don't respect's ass like different yeah. from the movie where it seemed like the movie made it seem like he walks in and everybody's like oh shit there he is like don't oh. say the wrong thing or like oh yeah it's not he's like got that. this big aura to him when he walked in he didn't have a big aura when he walked in did steve carell lose weight for it because steve carell's kind of a stocky dude yeah yeah he he, th- he trimmed up he must have yeah because yeah. they added some uh facial stuff to make I his nose different they gave him the, the beak, they gave him the beak nose oh my god in the trailer I didn't he did a phenomenal him. job there's no denying yeah. the acting that was the caliber of acting it was more the the writing and the directing that i had an issue with i don't know if they okay. captured the right i don't know watch the documentary and then watch the film and tell me what you think on twitter or whatever but i, I just feel like they, they kind of got it wrong as far as the behavior of the people around each other i don't think mark behaved the way he behaved uh, in the movie right around dupont and I what think sucks it was different. i think is... it was a different dichotomy it was a different vibe then the movie made it feel like. What sucks is we don't have any Mark in the documentary to compare either, mm-hmm. which kind of sucks. True. We don't get to True. see we the get way. We get to see Dave with, we get with to Dave's see, such a different guy. Yes, we get to see the way Dave carries himself. We get to actually hear Dave's conversations, mm-hmm. the way he speaks, you know, his diction and things like that. But with Mark, we don't we don't get any of that. Yeah. And the only, the only evidence we have of the way Mark acted and the stories that he had were in the book written mm-hmm. by Mark. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? Yep. So I wonder who they got for the movie. Mark helped with the movie, right? Did he not help with the I movie? Think, I think they definitely... Uh, they, he was an advisor, at least? Yes, I think they went to him for... And probably Valentin. Information. Valentin, for sure, yeah. yeah. Who we haven't even mentioned yet. No, well, he plays wrestler. a big role in this. Yeah. And made out like a bandit. <laughs> <laughs> God damn, he sure did. <clears throat> this is a weird point where DuPont began competing in senior wrestling matches and even paid to have one staged against like a Bulgarian champion. Remember that in the documentary? Where yes. it was like This guy was like a legit old man wrestler, won titles and stuff. And he basically, it was so obvious when you watch oh the footage. God. It's like he just let... This dude, How much did he get paid? This dude could have picked DuPont, DuPont up and literally him like break him in half. Yeah. He could have broke him in half DuPont so easily. Had, not only had no physical ability, but also didn't even use technique. You can hear 
in matches, Dave was by his side later on because he really got into like doing all these competitions with Dave as like his corner man. This is beyond when Mark. Oh, we're, we're yes. getting, where Dave's like yelling advice to him and yes. he's not taking any just of it. He ignores all of it. He's like, yeah. don't put your head in there. Don't do it. Oh, there you put Let go head. of his head. Let go of his head. <laughs> right. Yeah, he's just headlocking people yeah. and he's like, Dave's like, let go. He won't let go. Don't do don't, you're giving him your leg. Stop. Stop. He does not listen. Because of course DuPont knows better. He knows oh, he knows everything. Right? <clears throat> yeah, so that's like a little bit later on, but we're getting close to the point where Mark has had enough and he leaves the farm, and that's when Dave goes full time to the farm. Yeah. Uh, but yeah, he started competing in all these wrestling matches. We'll talk about. He also created an award ceremony for himself called the Citizens Athletes Awards, at which he was presented. Awards by athletes that he yeah. paid to present awards to him for himself. So he would yeah, stand it's up on the held podium slightly higher than the Dundies. <laughs> <laughs> right, got him. Perfect. Perfect. <laughs> slightly higher regard than the Dundies. Right. In 1986, Dupont fired Mark from his assistant coaching position at Villanova after Mark had thrown a party at his apartment where alcohol and underage wrestlers were present. Dupont told Mark that he could remain a part of Foxcatcher if he moved onto the farm to train full time. Mark reluctantly agreed, so he basically blackmailed him into moving on to the farm and living there full-time so that he could have yeah. control over him. Now, from Mark, after from getting fired book, from his job, had no other options, really. He right. was getting health insurance from this job and everything, so really right. he kind of corner, cornered him. Now, Mark even had said in the book that one of his vices was he did like to party. Yeah. Like, he would work hard, but when it, was, when it was wrestling off-season, mm -hmm. yeah, he was, he was party-hardy, so... Mm -hmm. In August 1988, a problem-plagued wrestling program he funded at Villanova was finally shut down. So he was still running this Villanova wrestling program that was a joke. Yeah. Because he was the head coach, not doing his duties. And and you know, it was close to his estate. Yeah. Honestly, in Pennsylvania, right? Yeah. And so he just decided to shut that down and focus on Foxcatcher Farms wrestling program, which was growing more and more. In December 1988, a lawsuit which was settled out of court claimed DuPont had made improper sexual advances to Villanova assistant coach Andre Metzger. So... Little bit more clout to the to the gay thing. I wonder how much of that revolves around the the whole uh, the the Fox Character Five move there. Right. You know Maybe what I mean? he was just desperate to do anything that would work against a real wrestler. So right. he kept grabbing dudes' balls and they're like, all right, enough for <laughs> Yeah, exactly. Cause like now, two thousand nineteen. <clears throat> There's also a move called Bro. checking the oil where you put your thumb in their butt. Ah. Uh, yeah. To like get control. Like right. you grab their butt cheek. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> it's a legit move. I guess Randy yeah. Couture used to use it a lot. Oh, really? The natural, the natural's doing the oil yeah, check on that's you. That's a you natural don't want that. move there. <laughs> yeah, it's damn. only natural to do the oil <laughs> check, you know? <laughs> oh, God. <laughs> <laughs> I'm still getting over being sick, guys. That's why we missed last week. If you can't tell from my nasty voice and my constant coughing and <laughs> throat clearing. Oh, I know you sound great. Mm, good stuff. Yeah, we've had to pause a lot for that. And while living on the estate, Mark witnessed DuPont's extreme dive into cocaine use and more uh, evidence that he was in cahoots with the police. One of these big bags of cocaine that Mark witnessed him uh, using, which actually Mark partook with him. They did coke together at one point. Yeah. Um, but he noticed that one of the, the big bags of coke that Mark or that uh, DuPont had was like an evidence bag from a police evidence room, <laughs> like evidence locker, like... Uh, awkward. Because he'd been given, he'd actually been given uh, a badge and was yeah. was paid a, a dollar per year salary to be like a, what do they call that? Um, like some sort of deputy, like a second An unofficial member of the police force or thing. whatever. Yeah. He was given a fucking badge and he would flaunt it. this badge it. everywhere. He would actually use it to get into places free. He went to a wrestling tournament. Yeah, of and course. And flashed his badge to get in so he could avoid like the $4 cover charge to get in, like. And this guy's a fucking multi-millionaire. <laughs> With the $4 charge. Yeah. But yeah, he had an uh, evidence bag of cocaine that he was 
sniffing on. Um, in 1988, he lost his mother, and it's said that his sanity began to crumble further after this. However, Mark actually denies this and says that he saw no change in, in John. John was already crazy. Nothing really changed. If anything, he was hmm. now allowed to be himself more, and that maybe it didn't it didn't break him down mentally like the loss of his mother. It was more just like he now had even more free reign with the money and the farm to do what he wanted. Oh, okay. So more, more like the animal out of the cage, not less so much him, of a change. Yeah, less him broken up and mourning about his mother and more just like, all right, now let's really get crazy because yeah. I got more resources available. Exactly. Mama ain't here to stop me. <laughs> um, it was that same year that Mark had finally had enough and left the farm for good. After he finished sixth place at the 1988 Summer Olympics in in Seoul, um, and and how he he lost is it, it, he threw the match. It's int- yeah, he didn't he even claims, try. He claims. I mean, this is his word, but he claims he threw it in order to make Foxcatcher look bad. He was tired of giving all the credit to Foxcatcher when he won, and I kind of um, believe that dude to yeah. lose fourteen to nothing. Yeah, he says he threw his final match fourteen nothing in order to send a message to USA Wrestling. It was not as even entirely about Foxcatcher. It was like, see what you guys have made me done, USA Wrestling. You've made me rely on Fox, a guy like John Dupont and Foxcatcher. It was a protest, yeah. Yeah, he's like, you, if it weren't for you guys not funding us, I wouldn't have to basically go work for this creep mm-hmm. um, who's dangerous because he's seeing more and more erratic behavior from John Dupont on the farm and more and more controlling behavior and manipulation He's dealing with all this shit. He's John's told him he's promised him I'm going to ruin your career when yes. they got when they got into an altercation. Every he, time he held that over his head, he would yeah he would constantly. That's the the whole firing thing with the underage drinking. He saw that was a, an example of John Dupont seeing a, a chance to ruin him. Mm-hmm. Got him fired. Kind of besmirched besmirched his name um, with that whole thing. The under because I mean really it was not a big deal. It was some some wrestlers that were a couple years under 21 that were hanging out. Yep having some beers or whatever. And of course, John DuPont saw that as an opportunity to try and ruin him and, and get more power over, make him move to the farm and everything. Absolutely. We mentioned that John was married very, very briefly for only like a month. And after the divorce, she made many claims about John, uh, that he had thrown her into a fireplace, that he had thrown her out of a car. He had threatened her with a knife and put a gun to her head with accusations that she was a Russian spy. I don't, I believe all of that. I 100% believe it all. Yeah. I think he really started to, with all the excessive drug use, he was said to not be sleeping. Wrestlers that lived at Foxcatcher said that, like, they would be, they would take uh, rotations going to hang out with him at the right. uh, at the mansion just to kind of keep him company. And all of them said that he never slept. Like, they would be downstairs and he'd just be upstairs pacing. Well, you know, he you was know di- he was going into psychosis. He was, he was. Basically, uh, became a schizophrenic near the end. You know what? Though I, I said earlier that the I feel like the only price, the real price that people that rich people pay is the you know not knowing about friends and things like that, but also the paranoia that someone wants to take it from you. It's oh, got to yeah, be no, intense. A lot of like a lot of you, rich people get paranoid yes. <laughs> for right, like I, rightfully so. A lot like of I times. seen an interview with Post Malone. He talked about how he. Yeah, basically has insomnia like since he's gotten rich he's gonna say always he also a guy that night. doesn't sleep literally has uh always tired on his fucking face and yeah, tattoos like because he never sleeps he's paranoid that someone's gonna break in his house yeah. and take his shit and then the the bad thing about it is the longer you stay awake the more paranoid you get the more mm-hmm. insane you get the more detached yep, yep. it's a, it's a hard way to live and especially if he's getting older he just lost his mom so he's the last dupont right no i think he still had siblings he still had, like a sister that would come visit and stuff like that 
Yeah, but they're not living there. They're no, not no, yeah. there he's to the, help. He's the one maintaining the estate and everything. Yeah. He's like the main heir. Yeah, the 800 last acres, son. man. That's a lot of room he for somebody to hide. True, he was, the, I think, the only true son to the DuPont family heir or whatever, the one that could carry it on. Okay. That name. Yeah. Um, I believe. I don't know. There could have been other DuPonts, like cousins and whatnot. I don't know. By December 1988, Mark Schultz had finally had enough and left the farm for good. He actually peeled out in his car, leaving a long skid mark in the lawn in front of the mansion. I fucking <laughs> love that image. He's like, I'm yeah. fucking out of here. <laughs> Mark would do that shit, too. He's just the right so hothead. He would right. do that shit. He actually, at, right after leaving, really uh, made like, he was. He felt his life was so ruined. He didn't know where to go. He just started driving kind of aimlessly. Yeah. He ended up in Colorado Springs because he knew of a great wrestling coach that he'd always admired, mm-hmm. happened to be in Colorado Springs, and he went there not knowing the guy, just hoping the guy would take him in, and he did. God damn, but, what a time to be alive. Right, but shortly after <laughs> he left, he blamed like his life going downhill so much on DuPont, he actually thought about killing him. Like He actually came up with an elaborate plan. Did you hear that part of the book? Yeah. Where he said he was yep. going to get a crossbow, Yep. and he was going to, he knew the exact bush on the property he that had, was just far enough away from practicing mansion. archery like he was he was gonna try and get away with it he was gonna sneak onto the fucking estate and hide in a bush and shoot him with a crossbow not fatally he was gonna walk up on he wanted he wanted john to suffer yeah he he said he was gonna walk up on john and pump a few more arrows into him as john pleaded for his life i was like damn that's fucking dark bro that is dark like i get it that you don't like the guy and he ruined your you think he ruined your life but damn that's some cold-blooded shit yeah so maybe dupont had a right to be so paranoid (laughs) 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 never mind now that i think about it I, w- I think I would stay awake too. <laughs> uh, Mark said that he'd felt as though he'd escaped a cult after leaving there. He, I could he, see that. He got back to normal life in Colorado Springs as a coach at the wrestling program and stuff. And, yeah. he, was, and he realized how much uh, control that DuPont had had over. He realized how Dude. bad it truly really, He knew it was bad, but once he got out, he realized even how much more it was bad. He was above the police. he had relief now. He was like, oh, shit, I'm not under this cloud of Foxcatcher, you know? Mm-hmm. Not long after Mark left, however, DuPont lured in his brother Dave to live and coach at the farm full time. Offered him seventy thousand dollars per year Damn to it. come to come be a coach there. Good ass money in the late eighties. Hell yeah! And he gave him. A, you cannot blame Dave for taking this man. And, and you moved to this amazing estate that's eight hundred <sighs> acres, and Gorgeous. basically he gave Dave uh, a home to live in, which was like twenty five hundred square feet, two story home a full mile away from DuPont's mansion on the other side of the property yep. with woods right next to it where, where Dave loved to hunt. He could go out and hunt on in his spare time. He gets yep. the access to this amazing wrestling facility, some of the best wrestlers in the world where he still had goals. He still wanted to win another gold in Olympics. Yep. And Not so, to mention the safety and the peace of mind yeah. of having your family on this estate. Like it, it was nice for him. We we saw a lot of the footage in the documentary the where it looked like it was man. it was an ideal life for these wrestlers for a while. Yep. You know they just had this kind of unfortunate weird guy that would come around and they'd have to deal with him and cater to him and yeah. Like we said, Dave though didn't mind it for a while. We're getting into that part of the story. I don't but think Dave, Dave minded it ever. That's the thing. Up Did until he? the end, he started you getting think? afraid for his safety and his family's safety, but he had the Olympics in mind that he had to get through that. Yeah, but wasn't he quoted as saying, if I if I felt like my family was not safe or I felt like my kids were in danger, I wouldn't think for a second. I would leave. Yeah. He was quoted as saying that right up until the very end, was he not? Maybe that was before certain things happened. Okay. I don't know. Um, Dave by now had a wife named Nancy and two kids. The, the wife, Nancy, was the one he'd met in college that we talked about who mm-hmm. he was very... Uh, modest with like yeah I wrestle yeah. <laughs> uh, and yeah now he had two kids a boy and a girl Danielle and Alexander who would also live on the farm um, yeah he was given this 2500 square foot two story house 
beautiful forest behind it, hunting and activities. Family loved it. Other uh, wrestlers, families, they had like a commune almost. Like they had, there was other wrestlers who lived on the farm in their own little homes. Yeah. Dan, like... Dan Chade was one of them. Mm-hmm. So like he's there living with his buddies. All they do is wrestle. Their families are there. They're in a safe, seems like a safe, beautiful environment. It's like their own little Jonestown. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, it kind of is. It is very culty. By now, John had added some of the world's best wrestlers to Team Foxcatcher. Dan Chade, who we keep mentioning, Rob Calabrese, Dave Lee, Valentin Jordanov, who plays a huge role in this, a Russian wrestler who yes. Dave had always respected. Dave actually recruited him to come to Foxcatcher mm-hmm. from Russia because he respected this guy so much. Dave knew Russian, by the way. He learned Russian. Yes. Just, just so he could learn from guy. Russian wrestlers. Yeah. Such an interesting guy. And that drew, drove a big wedge between... Dave Schultz and John Dupont. Mm-hmm. Because Val- Dupont Valentin, also liked Valentin. Valentin Jordanov shows up, who Dave recruited to come there because they had such a mutual respect. Right. Dupont w- had this infatuation with Dave for a long time. The mm-hmm. first few years that Dave was living on the farm and everything was peachy and hunky dory. They're traveling yeah. around to wrestling matches. You know, not only for Dave and the other wrestlers, but for Dupont's fake bullshit wrestling matches or yep. or matches that were real where he was just getting beat up by an old man. It was pretty sad. You can see footage of that. <laughs> Everything's peachy. Valentin yeah. shows up, and I don't know. I have a kind of differing. I can't really figure out where I reside on this as far as do you think – because the documentary would make you believe that DuPont was – uh, really infatuated with Dave, and then when Valentin showed up, he switched that over to where he was obsessed with Valentin, always wanted to be around Valentin. Right. I almost wonder if that was because Dave and him had such a close relationship that it's, I don't, I think he was still obsessed more with Dave, but he wanted to get, he wanted Dave to feel the way he was feeling on the outside. Um, yeah, I think it, you know it, it could have been a part of that. Yeah. And it could also be the fact that, well, if Dave thinks this guy is great, that too, then man, he must be really great. But there's footage of them like riding around in a car together. And Dave, Valentine, and and John, yeah. and like Dave and Valentine are in the back talking Russian, joking around, and John yeah. is very jealous in the front seat, very well, awkward. And and they joke with him, but they can't tell whether John is is like I think, how he's going to respond. Is he going to get? Yeah. Oh, is he going to get angry? Oh. I love that footage in the car. Where <laughs> yeah. It's like you're like you really see like God. This guy is like they would he's say that a, he's a loose cannon, man. John he was. John, you never they, knew how he's going to react. They said the whole the whole vibe of the farm depended on John's on John uh, his like outlook on that day. Yeah, like, his behavior. Like sometimes he would show up, he'd be in a great mood, and everything was awesome. This yeah. is why we're here. We love this. And then the next day, John would show up, and it was like, uh-oh. Energy vampire. Yeah, it just sucked yeah. the life out of everything. Like, uh-oh, is he going to be fucking carrying a gun drunk around today? Like, right. shooting a hole in the roof of the fucking wrestling room? Yeah. Threatening people? <laughs> <clears throat> uh, quote from uh, Kevin Jackson, who was a, an Olympic gold medalist in Barcelona in 1992 and member of Team Foxcatcher, one of the greatest wrestlers in the world during the time. Just a jacked black dude. <laughs> Kevin Jackson was oh, a bad yes. motherfucker. Oh, yes. I remember him in the documentary. Yeah. yeah. Yes, he interesting was a beast. Way, It was interesting how he got kicked out of Foxcatcher, surely yeah. for his skin color. Skin color. Yeah, we'll and it had that. nothing to do with race. It was nothing just to do with anything. Uh, oddly it. enough, you'll see. Yeah, it, it sounds like that. Can, yeah. Couldn't be, but it, yeah. Uh, quote from Kevin Jackson, if it wasn't for Dave being at Foxcatcher, nobody else would have gone. He was a legend, just one of the best wrestlers in the world at the time. There was no one else who carried himself like Dave. He was an ambassador for the sport, a one-of-a-kind Someone a lot of people called friend. I think that's an understatement. Yeah. I think almost everybody that ran into Dave. He was the straw that stirred the drink. He was the glue that held Foxcatcher together. He kept, yeah. And he was a lot of times the guy that would talk 
John down when he was in one of those bad moods. He yes. came in and he sucked the life out of the room. It would be Dave that would go over there and he had this lightheartedness to him where he would kind of like, he could flip John's mood to like, he could, he could be like, John, that's a, you know, like that, have that smile and like all of a sudden John's like, you know what, you're right. And like, it would calm down yeah. and like the, the freaking armor would come down. Yeah. And he, I think because a lot of times John probably thought everyone was making fun of him and Dave would go over like, dude, it's, it's not like that. It's all, it's yeah, not like it's that. All, it's we're all a family head. here. Yeah. It's yeah. all in your head. It's not like that. <clears throat> which it was a lot of times, except it, that Dave didn't want it to be like that. I think Dave really wanted everyone to respect John. And yeah, I do think that Dave was being genuine in he his was. explanations, but some, but the other wrestlers were being patronizing to John. They I mean, were. that's. But I mean, how would you? They're not meatheads. Be? They're meatheads. Like, how would you they're, not be? They're, yeah, they're fucking. Like you, you gotta stay in your lane. Like yeah. if John would have just carried himself, if he would have showed up in like a suit Thank and you. was like, "What do you guys need? What do you get?" Like and just been. And even if the he business. wanted to wrestle with him, even if he wanted to wrestle with them, but he knew his place as far as like, yes. I can't just, look, guys, just be easy with me. Yeah. But he really thought he was one of them. Exactly. Like when he wrestled with him, he they would have to let him win because if they didn't, they were afraid he was gonna lose his shit. Yes, because, because he, he really thought he was wrestling. That he was lesser than. He just couldn't in that realm. He could not accept that. Right. Very strange. So that's yeah. of course why they're gonna. Like, if you take yourself too seriously and you suck at something, people are gonna behind your back. They're gonna make fun <sighs> of you. Like this guy really thinks he's yeah, one of us. You can't. Like, yeah, you can't do that. Stay in your lane. Stay in your lane. Once again, <clears throat> uh, Dave living on the farm full time added stability and leadership to Foxcatcher, and the team thrived while he was there. He also felt compassion for Dupont, urging understanding when others condemned the millionaire's wild behavior. Dave and his family saw John like a lonely uncle that just wanted companionship. They would spend a lot of time at the mansion with John and uh, have him over to their house uh, on the farm as well quite often. They spent holidays together. Like the kids were always around John. And like you, there's video of them like cutting turkeys together. And like yeah, this thing went on successfully for years, but there were signs. There was always signs something was going to go wrong. Police were receiving over the years multiple calls about John's dangerous behavior and just kind of let it slide. Oh, that's just John, you know. Because yeah, he got drunk and fired a gun in the house again. Yeah. That's just John, you know. Or threatened like, a wrestler or something like that. He wouldn't like a fly, though. Bullshit, dude. At a certain point, you got to start taking some of this shit seriously. Absolutely. He's going to hurt. Everybody knew he would eventually hurt somebody. Um, he began competing in wrestling at the age of 55 again, John, after like the last time he had wrestled was back in uh, high school, I believe, for a minute. It was it wasn't it. Oh wow! Like actually competing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Began competing again at 55 in the 1992 Veterans World Championships in uh, Cali, Colombia. Following that, in 1993 in Toronto, Ontario, in 1994 in Rome, Italy. So they're just traveling around the world so that he can have his fake little wrestling wrestling yeah. career and get. That's beat incredible. Up, either get beat up by old guys or uh, stage an event where he actually wins, and it's just exactly. so obviously staged. <laughs> <clears throat> Because yeah. these guys make more to lose to John Dupont than they ever would winning the competition, <laughs> so they're like, "Yeah, I'll take an L well, for this. I'll take Shit. a dive to this weirdo." <laughs> <laughs> uh, every day, however, John was slipping further into madness with all of his drunk, uh, all of his uh, drug use and drunkenness. He began frequently carrying loaded weapons around the farm, firing at random objects. Once firing through the gymnasium ceiling during team training, as we had alluded to earlier, on another occasion. He injured a road maintenance worker in a hit-and-run incident. Uh, there were several occasions where he was said to have driven his car into the lake on the property for no real reason. No that one could really figure so out why. That was so strange. He no did that. No one could really that, figure out why. Claimed it was an accident. Got the exact same car delivered 
Back to the property. And then there was someone there, though. There was someone of importance there. Mm -hmm. And just to show them how unimportant he thought they were, they were riding with him. And then he drove it into the lake with them in the car. (laughs) Like, the dude is insane. When I heard that part of the documentary, I was like, what the fuck? It's like a brand new Lincoln. And he's just, like, driving. What? What the hell? He was such a serious guy, too, though. Like, what's crazy is all this stuff sounds silly. He was so yeah. deadly serious when he did all this stuff. Yeah, what if he you was just the driving footage and, he of him like, and he's just dead-eyed serious, like, walking around, like... Yeah, he was probably like, this, car, strut. this car is also a submarine. Let me show you. He had, like, a cocky strut. Like, he was, like, a, like a gr- great athlete, too. You know, the way he walked around, yeah. it was like he was a serious man about business. Well, when you have that money flag <laughs> hanging above your head, dude, it's yeah. you feel very powerful. Mm-hmm. His behavior also became increasingly paranoid. He shot a flock of nesting geese just because uh, he believed they were casting spells on him. Mm, yeah. He removed... Good tread- call. He, this is when you get into the paranoid schizophrenic stuff. He removed treadmills and exercise bikes from the gymnasium because he believed the timers on them were turning back time. Mm, gosh. He heard... Uh, he believed there was stuff in the walls that was um, like rec- microphones that were recorded. That's very schizophrenic Man, He thing. spent so much money having these quote-unquote experts like come to his house and check the walls. The security guy that was there through. the day of the murder yes. It was in his car was a guy that was completely just taking advantage of the situation financially because Dave... Yep. I mean, uh, John must have been paying this... this so-called security company, mm-hmm. a whole lot of money to go around his property, doing on a whim whatever he said. I think there's a microphone in the ground right there, and they would bring yep. out excavation. Fucking, they'd bring a backhoe and start digging up his yard. <laughs> like, oh, nothing there, John. I'll take my money now. Yeah, they started taking wall. Like they started going through the walls of John's his house. John's just ripping out checks. Here you go. Check that wall, dude. Check that, that guy wall. in the documentary. <laughs> they interviewed the security guy. They did. Yeah, that was running this fucking program, and he mopping up. Dude, what? he even had a smirk. When he was talking about this, he's like, hey, if John wanted me to confirm that there was no microphones in his walls, who am I to stop him from paying me thousands of dollars to tear apart his walls and then put them back together? Yeah. Who am I? Yeah. I just wanted to give the guy peace of mind and get a whole lot of money doing it. Exactly. The guy literally had a smirk on his oh, face. Oh, yeah, he did. You got to watch it. Yeah. <clears throat> Meanwhile, Dave, now in his mid-30s, set his sights on the 1996 Olympics. People were kind of questioning whether he could actually make a run at this thing again, but... I don't think yeah. there's too much doubt. If there's anyone that could do it, it was him. You know I think what I mean? Dave could do it. In his mid to late 30s, Dude, still he still looked the another. same to me. He still looked, he, st- he was still in shape. Yep. He still looked in his right mind. Still he, a technical assassin when yes. it came to the mats. And that's really. Still in practice. It's not like he wasn't wrestling anymore. He's still wrestling every day. Yeah. Um, he was hoping to give it one last shot at a gold medal. And that's kind of what was keeping him there. Because he's seeing all these signs too. He's starting to mm-hmm. become afraid for his safety and his family's safety on the farm. But also he felt a responsibility to train these other wrestlers at Foxcatcher, he felt like if he left, where does that leave them? You know, they, this is this is their livelihood. Right. They they now have a roof over their heads, and they're getting to do their passion every day. You know, day. that's a great point, dude. Dave must have felt some sort of responsibility for all of those wrestlers because they were all there because of him. Mm-hmm. And they even said that. They're mm-hmm. like, we're all here because of Dave. If Dave wasn't here, I wouldn't come. Dave was here. You know, yep. nobody would come. Yeah. Valentine wouldn't have come. Nobody nope. would have. No. Nope. Yeah, Dave knew by now that he couldn't stay on the farm much longer because John was even beginning to scare him and his family could be at risk. He was planning to leave after the 1996 Olympics. Let's get to the Dan Chade thing, which kind of uh, just pushed this further, the detention on the farm. Oh, Um, yes, where he wanted Dan to move? Yeah, yeah, Yeah. so so John was frequently, you know, always around with the smell of alcohol in his breath, evidence of cocaine use and pills. Friends Friends and family tried to intervene to no avail. Um, and that's when Dan Shade kind of stepped in quote. He said, I'd say, John, you really need help pretty soon, but he'd close you out because he didn't want to hear that. And so Dan's trying to, you know, get, get involved in trying to help the guy. Yeah. 
Um, after an incident in October 1993, Chade also spoke to the police. He said, quote, I was working out in the weight room. DuPont came in and pulled a gun on me and said, don't you fuck with me. I want you off the farm in a very aggressive way. I could tell he wasn't in the right state of mind. I cowered him to him just enough to get him to back off. Then he left. I told the police the next day I went on the, went to the local courthouse, put a report there. Then the county courthouse, he was definitely getting closer and closer to doing something where somebody was going to get hurt. Dan Chade finally did leave the team shortly after that and moved off the farm. However, he returned, uh, I don't know, it was like a week or two later to get his stuff. He brought a moving truck back to the farm because, you know, he was staying in one of uh, DuPont's houses on the, on the farm, but he still had his stuff in the house. So he returns with a moving truck to get his stuff and he kind of hangs out for the day. He's hanging out Wait, with Wait, didn't didn't John have that U-Haul in front of his house? What I'm Remember? explaining what happened. So he brings the U-Haul truck over, right? <clears throat> um John Oh, John. John. That's right. John parked it in front of his house yeah. to send a message. Yeah, he was <laughs> like, right. "Here's your truck. Get your shit and get out." <laughs> that's right. John brought the yeah. truck there. Okay, but when Dan Dan left knowing he was in danger, yeah. came back in his personal vehicle to mm-hmm. get his stuff and he and basically John saw Dan Chade, after he had left the farm, he saw his personal vehicle sitting in front of Dave's house. Yes. And immediately the paranoia kicked in, like, what are they planning against me? Against me, Dave and Dan yeah. Chade are planning and something Dan, against Dan me. And Dan wasn't even there. Dan wasn't even there anymore. He had left yeah. in the moving truck. He, he was in the moving stuff. truck, yeah. The moving truck that, that just, John had put there for him. Exactly. He just left his personal vehicle at Dave's just for safekeeping for yeah. the time. Yep. Yeah. You're right. Yeah, so that car, the Dan Shade's car being in front of Dave's house set him off and, oh, yeah. and really got the paranoia kicking in. He shows up later that night to, to uh, Dave's house with a gun loaded, like loaded off alcohol, like drunk as fuck. Oh, man, he's shows plastered. Up. Keep in mind, Dave's family's inside this house, and Dave's immediately like, whoa, 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 you can't have this gun here. What are you doing? Yeah. Takes the gun from him and talks him down, as Dave does. Mm-hmm. However, the word is the basically the the story goes, um, and even Dave's wife confirmed that he was so drunk. John was was so drunk that he fell in the house and hit his head on something. I think it was like a yes, like a and then he coffee for, table or something. Then he, he forgot how that happened. Had a gash in his head. Yeah, and he was so hammered. The next day, he didn't know what had happened. He figured that Dave beat him up or something. Yeah. Some, which just doesn't match Dave's Wait, personality. Didn't he, still, didn't he blame it on Dan again because he thought Dan was there? It, because it, it, he never saw Dan. Who knows? Because he knows? did. Because he barely made it inside the door. So Dan was already gone. I think. Too. Yeah, but what I'm th- but what I'm saying is, I think John still. Oh yeah, he probably fell in the doorway, and hit his head. And, yeah, and then was like, "Dan, fucking knock yeah. me out." <laughs> yeah. Oh, he he showed was, up with a shotgun too. He showed up with a gun, drunk as fuck, falls, hits his head, and yeah. and the next day doesn't know what happened. He's blaming mm-hmm. it on Dave. Some Dave or Dan attacked him, is yeah. what he's thinking, and so the tension is now at a at a freaking fever pitch on the farm. Um, Kevin Jackson was also aware of DuPont's declining mental health. Here's another quote from Kevin Jackson. Sometimes he'd say something a bit off the wall and I was just, and, and I would just not respond. He says like, you're sitting there with his trophies and he says, one of them is moving and that it means, it means something just went through a hidden door into the house. There was also in the documentary, he would talk about the, there was, there were so many security cameras around the farm. Yeah. One of them was staring at the, at the woods one of these security and he would just sit there for hours oh and stare God. at it and he would have some of the wrestlers come over and be like do you see that person moving through those trees yeah and they didn't know whether like what to say cuz obviously they didn't see anything but they were like should i just appease him and say yeah i see it or should i not is this some kind of test they never right. knew what was going on in his head you know, he said he he was always saying stuff was in the walls talking to him or these microphones Dude, in the do walls do you think 
Do you think like something, what drove him crazy was just everyone trying to appease him his entire life? And then, and then after a while you start to, he's trying to question whether they're just going to go along with it to see if they're yes men or not. Maybe, or maybe you start to think in in John's case, it it seems though that everything you say is right. Mm -hmm. If everyone appeases you for every single thing, because you have money, because they don't want to lose your funding, they don't want to lose your quote unquote friendship. Mm -hmm. Then you start to think, well, shit, everything I say is right. So every inclination that I have must be be correct. Right. It must be. Yeah. And then you start having these crazy and inclinations. And then you're up all night doing cocaine. <laughs> and there you go, yeah. And, you never and sleep. compounding it with alcohol. You start seeing things. everyone knows the more cocaine you do, the more alcohol you can drink and vice versa. And it just, it's a whirlwind. Yeah, if you're seeing hallucinations because you haven't slept in days. Yeah. And you always think you're right because no one ever tells you you're wrong. Yep. You're seeing things for Dude, sure. This... Those are real things you're seeing. <laughs> yeah. Because <laughs> how could they not be? I'm always right. Right, exactly. <laughs> uh, another quote from, from uh, Kevin Jackson. He started carrying a pistol around and to be at the dinner table in the evenings, and I saw incidents of him shooting through the roof. I'd think, worst case scenario, he's going to shoot somebody. So whenever I walked into the house, I'd come in whistling and singing loudly. I didn't want him getting all surprised on me with a gun. (laughs) 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 Jesus. In 1995, Jackson said uh, DuPont started eliminating anything black on the farm because he associated black with death. Quote, he was taking out black gym equipment. The coach was told he couldn't drive his black vehicle. I was told, yeah, he's kind of losing it. And the black thing, that includes you too. Yeah. So Kevin Jackson Kevin and Jackson, the other black wrestlers on the farm were then wasn't told the they only had to one. Go. He wasn't the only one. There was other black wrestlers that were yep. part of the team, and they were all let go at the same time because he now viewed black things as death, death. or dangerous. Yeah. I think he was Crazy. afraid. He, he felt like death was following him around. Like yep. it was getting closer to him, and yeah, everything black was gone. Yeah. That's crazy. Everyone knew, including U.S. wrestling, everyone, that this guy was teetering on the edge. We all thought DuPont had issues and problems. Unfortunately, it all came to a head, and it all led to this day. On January 26, 1996, DuPont security consultant Patrick Goodell, the guy we talked about that was raking him over the coals and going on these little... <laughs> Going on yeah. these goose hunts with him to try and find the, the walls that were talking to him and taking fat checks out of it. Right. Uh, drove to the mansion for a 2 p.m. appointment. DuPont asked him to tour the estate with him to assess the damages from the recent winter storms and took his long-barreled 44 Magnum revolver with him. I'm sure the guy thought this is just another day. DuPont always carries a, a gun with him. Right. Um, so I'm not thinking much about it. They ended up at Schultz's house, Dave Schultz's house where the wrestler who was on the driveway tinkering with the radio in his Toyota Tercel turned and sauntered towards his boss with a smile. So, yeah, Dave uh, is just tinkering around in the driveway. John yeah. pulls up in a car with the security guy in the passenger seat, and he's thinking, oh, what, you know, what's, what's he up to? Aware of DuPont's increasingly erratic state, but never before on the, on the receiving end of his madness, he had no reason to suspect anything untoward uh, was afoot. So, yeah, he's Dave's really never it, – it's, it's not like he's had run-ins with – Aside from the one yeah. drunken night. Dave has seen the sides of John, but he's never been the target. Yeah. That night where John came to his house, he was more looking for Dan Chade, I think, where he yeah, had his head and he was so drunk too. and everything. And Dave was more worried, like, don't be bringing a gun to my house with my kids. Yeah. <clears throat> but, yeah, he never really seen, like, a full-on threat towards him specifically, like Dan Chade had, where he'd had the gun pointed at his chest while he's working out. Exactly. Um so he walks over to the car, and without warning, DuPont picked up his gun, pointed it at first at Goodell's face, then turned it on Schultz and fired. I said, John, what are you doing? Goodell testified at the trial. David screamed after the first shot. He fell. 
Goodell leapt from the car with his weapon and pointed it at DuPont. Our barrels met, then he threw his gun on the seat and backed the car out, he then recalled. Inside Schultz's house, Nancy and his wife of 14 years um, had been clearing the dishes from a family lunch when she heard the husband scream. As his blood stained the snow on the driveway, she cradled his head in her hands. In a call to 911 operator, she said, John DuPont shot my husband. Why, the dispatcher asked. Because he's insane, she cried back. Later, she would have to break the news to her son, Alexander, nine, and daughter, Danielle, six. That was one of the parts where I cried. In the that was rough, too, man. Was That's she, rough to She handle. described going down to the basement and telling their kids that John DuPont had shot their dad and he's dead. Brutal to tell a six- and nine-year-old when they just saw their dad earlier that day, you know. That's, that's awful. Absolutely brutal. But this, 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 this depiction that Goodell is telling, the uh, security guy who was in the passenger seat, doesn't seem to match up because didn't DuPont get out and shoot him like two or three more times in the driveway too? He, he walked up to him. And he like shot him more than him. once. He did. And he got out of the car and executed him. So he I did. think Goodell was more protecting, acting like he was more of a hero and he stopped him. Because I didn't hear that part except for from his perspective. Exactly. Me either. It he just doesn't seem to match the, in, the in all reality, ballistic, the, the, the ballistic evidence it, of, of Dave being shot multiple times. In all reality, Goodell probably got out the car and ran. I think he hid behind, like, the car. He yeah. got out and hid behind the car. Yeah. DuPont fled to his mansion, reloaded his gun, and locked himself in. Outside, 70 police officers and SWAT team members laid siege for two days. And you actually hear phone calls that they were making to him where he was saying, like, stand down. Like, basically, he thought he was God. Like, they couldn't yeah. even do anything to him. That's right. DuPont was finally captured after police switched off the heat to his home. Um <laughs> <laughs> his little skinny ass old Dry, ass was freezing in there yeah <laughs> they drove him out of the house due to it being so cold after a five week trial this is Philadelphia this is uh, Pennsylvania yeah it's cold so and I, I think it was what, what, when did we say the shooting took place it was uh, January oh he's <laughs> late freezing January, his ass off. late January in Pennsylvania and they yeah. turned the heat off to his house oh hell yeah yeah so they drove him out and he tried to like sneak out the back and they caught him after a five-week trial, psychiatric experts testified that he was a paranoid schizophrenic convinced that Schultz was involved in a conspiracy to kill him. Jurors, however, found DuPont guilty of third-degree murder and mentally ill, but not insane. He was sentenced to 13 and a half to 30 years and died in prison in 2010, age 72. No true motive was ever offered, however. I mean, we we know. I, I think it's pretty much... It's just paranoia. I think the experts, the psychiatric experts, nailed it with yeah. the paranoid schizophrenic convinced yeah. that Schultz was involved. And I think he, he was convinced that him and Dan Shade were up to something. Yep. That, yeah. It, he was Dude, just, it was a crash course with something talked, violent was going to happen. We've talked about it before. When you don't have any problems in your life, you create them. Yeah. I, I, feel, like, <clears throat> I feel like with your life... If you never ha- if you don't have any type type of strife or any your kind brain of difficulty, is just wired that way, right? You you it's almost like you look for it yep. and you find it. That's why you have to create He's, little obstacles for yourself to overcome that are positive. Yes, you know what I mean. Create like fitness goals or create yes. like that's a, why goals a goal are so to important make, to like make it to are, a certain level at work or something like that where it's yes. We naturally want to become better. If you at try things. to avoid all problems, your brain will make stuff, and that, yes. I think that's where a lot of anxiety and stuff like that comes stems from. And see, in John Dupont's case, he probably wasn't trying to avoid all problems. It was just easy for him. Yeah, because and, the any money was always occurred, there. He could just throw money at it. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. He had no real problems, so he had to create these ones in his mind. Yeah. It's a sad story, man. It is, and uh, we have a really good quote from. Uh, from my whole quote it's from jackson yeah kevin jackson yeah the great wrestler kevin jackson that was kicked off the farm for being black um quote 
DuPont wanted people to credit him for creating champions, but in the end, he destroyed one of the greatest champions wrestlers uh, wrestling ever had. Dave's death was a tragedy on so many levels, and why it happened, we'll truly never know. <clears throat> and he had a one of the biggest funerals I've ever seen, man. Did you did the footage in the documentary showed it? It was just like one Dude. after one person after another coming up to the podium and basically saying the same thing that he was a friend to all. He was one of the greatest wrestlers to ever live. He was a great family man and just truly gone too soon, man. Yeah, I agree. In Absolutely a great case. Agree. Thank you, Ethan, for recommending this case that we do this. We'd actually already had it on the docket to do. So I was like, all right, now yeah. we really got to do it because now someone suggested <laughs> Lauren's it as like, well. Great. Now we have an excuse to move it up. All right, right? let's move it up. <laughs> yeah, let's do it. And Ethan claims to be a uh, distant relevant, or, uh, a distant relative of the, uh, the Schultz brothers. Oh, wow. Good blood, man. Yeah, man. Oh, yeah. All right, what do you do? Do you wrestle? Does I was going to say, I bet you must be a badass wrestler just you, by nature, He probably right? does something. Even if yeah. you never wrestled, I'm sure you could shoot a double yeah, you should right just now. try it. <laughs> <laughs> hey, worst case scenario, it's man. Just jeans, do the old man. Foxcatcher 5 if you have to. You right. Know? <laughs> <It's> <laughs> Fake it till you make it, right? It's in the jeans. Yeah, it's, it's in the singlets. Right, yeah. The Foxcatcher 5 is undeniable. <laughs> Works Dead, every time. Deadly move. Unless you unless you got launched off a horse onto a fence. Right, unless you got plastic balls. So that's the story, man. That's the Foxcatcher, yeah, so, right? So, yeah, check out the film Foxcatcher. Check out definitely, on if you have Netflix, can't recommend it enough. Team Foxcatcher. And it's on YouTube, even if you don't have Netflix. Oh, it is? Yeah. But it's it, a Netflix the, original the movie. Description, the description is in Spanish, but oh, okay. the uh, the whole documentary is in English and the subtitles are in English. Yeah. Uh, so <laughs> I think they just posted if, it like that. To If you're so inclined, if you're uh, a wrestling nerd, if you wrestled in high school or college and you yeah. love the sport, definitely check out... Uh, Dave, or not uh, Mark Schultz. Mark book Schultz book. Well. Yeah, yeah. Because it's largely about wrestling. It is. It's about his journey, his training, even techniques. It's very in depth yeah. about wrestling for sure. Yeah. All right. We hope you guys enjoyed that. All right, creepers. We are back in the present. This is now 2021. Um, we hope you guys enjoyed that look back uh, into the old Patreon exclusive vault. If you guys want to hear more things like that, remember, patreon.com slash, uh, hmm, what is it? Patreon.com slash true crime guys, right? Yeah, that's what it is. I only say it every week. Patreon.com slash true crime guys. And for just two bucks a month, you guys can get access to hundreds of other audio files that we already have on Patreon, just waiting for you to binge, to binge through and to your heart's content, okay? And now Patreon offers yearly subscriptions, guys. So if you don't want to have the monthly bill, you can go on and pay $21.60 out the door if you're in the U.S. And that is one year at $2 a month, and you get a 10% discount as well for True Crime Guys. And each level, we have a $5 level and also a $10 level, and each level at the yearly subscription gets a 10% discount. So... You save a little bit of money there, and you also don't have to worry about your card getting hit every month. So, But, guys, thanks for listening. As always, we appreciate all of your support, even if you are just a freeloader, even if you're a diehard freeloader and you will always be a freeloader. We still love you, okay? We still love you. My puppy's barking in the background. I just got a new puppy. All right, guys, I'm going to go spend some time with it. We'll see you guys next week with a brand-new True Crime Guys ep. Remember, guys, keep on creeping. In the desert, we like a mirage. It's okay if you clicked on us because you thought we was True Crime Garage. Now we ain't mad at you. Sit down, let us talk at you. 
I'm talking to the creeper army. We out here making murder, get murder, get murder. Talk, get you. I'm talking to the creeper army. We out here making better charming.